Some people just know there's a better way to do things, like bundling your home and auto insurance with Allstate, or hiring someone to move your piano instead of doing it yourself. So, do things the better way. Bundle home and auto and save up to 25% with Allstate. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois. We got to vote for Eric. Man for you and me. We all trust in Eric. Future trustee. If you want to see the candy stripe back in the promised land, you best just vote for Eric. Cause no, 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 no. As who's your man? Not a lot of days left. No, in fact, eight days left. Boy! Eight, yeah, yeah. Eight days till either just just horrible defeat. I mean, just embarrassing, humiliating defeat or the thrill of victory. Will we get the exact numbers? Yes. I don't know if I want them. I don't know. know. I I mean, because in every situation, there's like, if it's really close either way, you know, again, thrilling. If it's in in, in our favor, if it's not, what could we have done more? And, and to your credit, I don't think you could have possibly done more. Uh, I did love the, uh, the locker room space speech you gave to spoiler alert. Your children, your very disinterested children, but it it was a reminder to me of like, oh yeah, this is is not over. There's still a lot of votes that can be gathered. And it was really, I think most of the first people to see that are going to be like, yeah, I voted like two weeks ago. I'm good. But in that speech, you remind them, look to the the Hoosier next to you. Because we all know, we, we all know Hoosiers next to us who have not cast their vote yet. And they could be the difference. Special shout out to my girlfriend, Holly, who shot the footage for that. Um, yeah, uh, she's a pro, a she DP in the all. making. She shot it and uh, dealt with my craziness of doing it over and over again. Although we didn't do it that many times, but it was fun. Look, I've had a blast. Uh, I really want to win. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, though, my thought was like, Going through those emotions, the butterflies of the home stretch, I was like, look, if nothing else, man, this was a lot of great content. <laughs> it's been great content. If I lose, I will delete it all. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, look, it's been great, but we need help. We need more votes. We need you to send it out to people. EPfortrustee.com slash vote. EPfortrustee.com slash vote. That will uh, take you right to the voting um, website at, at IU and send it to any alumni, friends, family that you have. And I do appreciate all the support we've been given. And we've been given a lot of support, Ward, both on PEGS and, um, and on Twitter. I, I will say what has been interesting is there's been some negativity as well. And look, people cannot vote for me. I mean, I get it. Believe me, I get it. (laughs) I'm not sure I would vote for me. No, but I mean, I I get it. But the ugliness that's come out on on some of this stuff is really, um, it makes me want to win more, obviously. Sure, sure. But it also, uh, it's a little bit 
um, scary is not the word, but sad is the word, I guess. I'm saddened by it. I mean, there's been some people that have taken some shots that are incredibly personal and, and just, just flat out lies to, to, because they think they're funny or whatever, but like they're cruel. And I, it has given me pause to think about like the politicians that run for real stuff that like their oh. families get brought into it. And it just kind of saddens me because the truth is the only thing we ever wanted to do was talk to Hoosier fans and like be part of that family. And I get right. it. Like I'm not everybody's cup of tea. You're more people's cup of tea than I am, I think. Um, well, maybe, maybe I, you should have run. <laughs> well, no, but this is this is what happens when you step into the arena. And and we've been this whole podcast has been talking to people in the arena, and we've we've had the cheap seats and we've got to speak to them about life in the arena. And I'm sure every single one of those guys and gals will say, Yeah, Eric, as soon as you step into the ring, um, even even fellow Hoosiers are, are going to have some not nice things to say about you. It's the nature of the beast. And when you put this political aspect into it, you know, you want to talk about a lightning rod for getting people to say nasty things. Just the word politics triggers something in people that makes it contentious, especially when it's all online. Yeah. And it's so easy. I mean, you just at the click of a button. So look, it, it's, uh, it's been, it's been wild. It's been fun. I, I, I owe the people who have done these endorsement videos and people like Holly and Mandy and my kids and you and, you know, I mean, just so many people that have helped us with these videos. They didn't have to do it. And it's been just humbling and flattering. And I really want to get on that board to do the things that we've been talking about when we talk about them seriously, which is make sure that Indiana is dedicating the right amount of resources to the things that we we all believe are really important to Indiana. And obviously we have an athletics bent to us. We, we believe that athletics can help the entire uh, university. It's been proven to help it at times in our history. And it's been proven over and over again at different institutions across the country. I know you read that article on Alabama and what the football team has done with Saban for the entire university. It's remarkable. Uh, and, and all the other things too, like not raising tuition and um, being more transparent on the board and all those kind of things. Uh, I really want to get in there and fight for them. So, well, I, and I will say you've always had uh, a greater interest in sports and IU you've, you've always been aware and kept track of the university as a whole, um, obviously throughout our friendship. And of course this podcast, most of the time we're talking about sports sure. because to a certain degree, it's almost, it's, it's it sounds counterintuitive to say about us in particular, but it's almost like, well, it's still a game. Whereas when you start talking about uh, Indiana University as a whole and education in people's lives and and how are they going to scrape up enough money to just pay tuition to go get an ed education to better their lives? You know, that is very real stuff. Um, and as soon as that light bulb went off and that reasonable rabbi episode where it was like, oh shit, I know why he left. I know he is now going to come back and say he's running for the board of trustees. The journey from that point to this conversation of how seriously you've taken, um, you're, you're just expanding your knowledge and understanding of 
how the university operates and why it's done the way it's done and how it could be improved, you know, just to see that growth and that investment of time and, and brain power that you've expended along with your job and your family and this podcast and keeping up with the, all the stuff we do. It's, it's quite remarkable. And I really, really hope the voters give you a chance to have a full run as a trustee where you're just going to continue on that journey of figuring out the problems and finding the solutions. I hope so. Can't do it without your help specifically, Ward. And you've been my, my consigliere on this whole thing. And, and also the people that have listened to us and supported us on Twitter and taken pictures in front of the billboard right there by Kids <laughs> and Pike on 4546. More t-shirts went out this last week to people who took pictures. So it's been fun. We really appreciate it. And now let's talk about what the hell is going on with Indiana basketball and why are we offering the son of a Purdue football player? It blew up the boards this last weekend. Blew them up. It's, it is... It is one of those where we spoke about this earlier. And then, of course, we, we can bring in the Dennis Scott, the third or yes. the fourth into that conversation, because that just happened of of a case of everybody being like, what, who, how the hell did this happen? We've never done this kind of thing before. And my knee jerk optimism is like, well, Woody knows something nobody else knows. Sure. I get it. That's where we want to go. That's yeah. by the way. That's where we should go until there's a reason not to, <laughs> right? I mean, like right now he's brought in a team on paper that we think is the best team that we've had in Bloomington since Yogi's last year. Yeah. Right. And that team mm -hmm. won the big 10 championship. So let's see how it works. I mean, like, I don't know enough about all this stuff and either do most of the people that are upset about it. So let's just see how it rolls. I don't know. Maybe we'll get Dennis Scott the seventh. I don't know. Is that, I mean, maybe he's number seven in line and you know what they say. First is the worst. Second is the best. Third is the one with the treasure chest. Fourth is the one. Nothing rhymes with fourth. Were you making those first three up? I mean, like it, it seemed like, it seemed like you were saying a thing, a phrase, and then you just ran out of stuff to say. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Well, that was I, you had me going for a minute. But you know, you've heard first is the worst, second is the best, third is the one with the treasure chest. You've never heard that? No, no. Is that for real? You've never heard first is the worst, second is the best? No, I don't. I mean, the treasure chest really threw the first one just sounds like something people would say off the top of their head, whether it was a thing or not. But the treasure chest is very specific, and I have not heard that. But it rhymes with best well i understand how rhyming works i don't i don't understand well, uh, uh, the, like the analogy the metaphor what, whatever picture you're trying to paint i now see like a pirate at the end of this thing I, I don't know i just feel like i mean also some people say first is the worst second is the best third is the one with the hairy chest have you heard that one no this the, is mind-boggling to me does this, it mean this anything is, this like, is when, when would you use this? When your kids are like racing to a door. First is the worst, second is the best, third is the one with the hairy chest. I mean, maybe on the playground as a, as a child, but it didn't stick with me. I mean, this would be akin to you telling, if you said to me, hey, I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich today. And I said to you, what is peanut <laughs> butter and jelly? 
Like no, that's how I, common it is in my life as a 43 year old man. I, I feel that, you know, let's, let's take it to the listeners guys. Is, is that phrase or that kind of that, no, that phrase specifically yeah. what you said with the treasure chest. Do, do you all know that? Do half of you know that 80%? Where's it at? You, what do you think it's going to be like? Everybody except me has heard that. 90% of people have heard that. All right. Well, three people will respond and we'll see what that percentage I may put up a Twitter to. poll. I may put up a Twitter poll. I would love to, I would love to see how I, I missed out on that trade. So listen, let's just say this about basketball. Cause okay. we got to shorten this intro tonight. We do. Trust in Woody until there's a reason not to. And right now there's no reason not to, right? So let's see how the season rolls. Let's see what happens with Justin Taylor and Kyle Filipowski. Let's see what happens with the 22 class and, and go from there. But I am trying to take some of your optimism and not get worried about what seems to be lunacy going on and just forge ahead. And you know what I am focusing? Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the key to that optimism is don't think about it too much. Yeah, that's fair. But you know what you can think about, Ward? Travell Mullen committed to Indiana University, four-star, cornerback, 2022 class. I mean, it's just a constant stream of good news. This is what it looks like to build a winning program for the long haul. I mean, this is what it feels like. We're in the middle of it. It is remarkable and so much fun. He is getting recruits on a constant basis that you constantly hear are the best recruit at this position that Tom that Tom Allen has gotten. The second best recruit ever in Indiana history. The third best recruit. It's like the 2022 class is set up to be the best class ever until 2023. <laughs> I mean, it's just remarkable. Now, I'm not going to cold throw cold water on it because, you know, that's not me. That's not what I do. Because my first line of thinking is a a lot of this has been through prior relationships and nepotism, right? Like, oh, my dad's going to be their coach there, or the coach was my coach in the USC, or my older brother was there. But but my optimistic side says, no, uh, uh, that that one, it's an indication that all these people are hearing really great things and gravitating towards this program because of what they've seen over the last couple of years and what they're hearing from people they love and trust who are already there going there. Um, But I think that's okay because that starts the ball rolling that now it'll be more Joe Blow from Arkansas who has no prior connection to the coaching staff or, or uh, has a sibling on the team because when that level of talent starts showing up, that's already committed and the results are even greater than what we witnessed last year, then we can start getting the people who we had no prior connection to, but they're just killing it with anybody within their circle to, to get them to come in. I think to your point, and maybe that's how a lot of great programs have built. Uh, Initially, you just reach out to those who are within your reach and they're all like, Oh yeah, I'm in, this sounds great. It looks great. I'm coming. And that is what starts the momentum that results in year after year guys, you just call up, uh, you know, when they hit their senior year of high school and you can convince them to come because of what they're seeing on the field every Saturday. And I'll also say this, I'll give you the McCullough brothers because that's, they're the sons of the coach, but 
Taiwan Mullen just decided to come to Indiana because Tom Allen recruited the hell out of him and he came to Indiana. Travell Mullen is coming to Indiana because he loves what he sees his brother is going through. They're not related to Tom Allen. They're from Florida. And he no, but, but I'm saying, yeah, the first Mullen, and I don't know where, what he was rated. Hot. Big, big brother, but younger brothers higher, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So like I'm when the Bosa had- brothers went to Ohio State, when the Bosa brothers went to Ohio State, it's like, well, yeah, you, I mean, there's, there's two schools of thought. One is that like the Zeller brothers all went to different schools, right? right. So sometimes brothers want to forge their own path. You sure. know, Christian Watford went to Indiana and Trendon Watford went to LSU. And part of that was everybody said Trendon wanted to carve his own path. And get I'm sure, paid, get yeah, paid. Exactly. There's probably some of that too. <laughs> but, but the fact that Indiana is such a strong program that Taiwan Mullen comes and is a star and Travell, who could be a star, says, I don't care about being in my brother's shadow. That what they're doing there is awesome. Yeah. And he could have gone anywhere and he's coming to Indiana. What is going on at Indiana is freaking special and exciting, and it has never happened in our lifetimes. Never happened. And in yeah, it's it's really really fun to uh, watch. I guess is what you would call it when you you go onto pigs every day and you see who's on the docket, who they're talking to, who's excited to get an Indiana offer, and then and then when we actually get a kid to sign on the dotted line and it's yet another stud, you're like I, I'm not used to it yet, but no. but man do I want to get used to this. I also am realizing what I've been missing as a primarily basketball fan because in basketball what are you lucky if you get a class where there's like three people to get really excited about football? You got like 22 commitments that are possible to get excited for. I mean, just imagine the calendar time that that takes up for all those guys to commit. It makes, it gives me so many more dates to be happy. <laughs> yeah. like, that's, that's what it's all about. It. Yeah. So I'm excited as hell about it. And I, I just cannot <sighs> wait to oh. Shady's talking. I he's excited wait. too. Yeah, he, I think he's, he found another commitment. I cannot wait to get to Bloomington to see a game. Uh, and I, we got 74 days, I think, now till September 4th when we kick off against Iowa. And that is going to be awesome. What we, I was thinking we should do a hysterics LA event that day. Okay. For the first game of the year. Just Great. LA, yeah. anybody in the surrounding areas, San Diego, San Francisco, come on down. Wait, and you said that's September 4th. 4th. So yeah. that's also like for our birthday. Exactly. Exactly. So it's a hysterics birthday bash and Iowa bashing all in the same day. <laughs> we, we're going to do that. All right. Listen, man, we got a part two today with one of our favorite people that we've had the pleasure and honor and privilege of meeting because of this podcast. And I feel like he's going to be a friend for the rest of our lives. And I just love him, and I love that he came back late at night, his time, to talk to us again. The dude has so much swag. It's pretty obvious to me that he's powered by...
I just went right into it. I, know, I just went- I- I almost, I forgot that we got the straight no chaser, but I'm so glad we have the straight no chaser. I'm just so glad. Uh, Hey man, trustee campaign. One more reminder. We're eight days away. epfortrustee.com slash hysterics. Oh no, epfortrustee.com slash vote. (laughs) epfortrustee.com slash vote and follow us on Twitter at Hoosier Hysterics for the hysterics. No E, no I. But, but the, the sometimes, sometimes why. why we're releasing videos every day with endorsements and fun videos wait, for the campaign. Wait, you we, you just did the Twitter handle at the end of the intro. I know because I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to get it out there. I wanted people to pay attention. Nobody hears. <laughs> at the end. Nobody hears us at the end. But at the end of the intro, they do because they're skipping ahead trying to get to end. I know that's why I'm hoping. Oh, you did it again. You're ruining it. I'm about, we are, we are getting a little bit sloppy. It's not even nearly as late on the West coast as it was for our guest, but let's just get to our guest. He's sharp as always. See you next week. Why did I say see you next week? Here comes our guest. Here comes our guest. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, hysterics of all ages. We're back with one of our very, very favorite people and guests, Angelo. Oh, Ward. Ward revealing the guest for the first time ever. I've never done that before. That's how excited I am. (laughs) There's more than one person whose name starts with Angela. Yeah, Angelo Dundee, the (laughs) head boxing trainer is who we're talking to. We're off to a good start. Let's just do this. I gave him the long laundry list intro last time, and I left out a key uh, component of that list. But I found a couple other things that weren't on that list that I want to say here because they're ridiculous. For example, our guest today was named by the Indiana Historical Society as a living legend. That is what they named him. A living legend is the honor that they gave him in 2011. In 2013, he was inducted into the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame, and he received the Hall's Silver Medal Award, given in recognition of contributions to Indiana high school basketball by someone other than a high school player or coach. Very prestigious award. Guys, we know who we're talking to. We're talking to one of the best storytellers, whether it's on podcasts or in film of all time, or just over a couple glasses of wine. We are talking to the man, Angelo Pizzo. Welcome back. Thank you. And I have had a couple glasses of wine. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Being out to dinner. but uh... All right, Angelo, we're going to pick up right where we left off. I mean, the last time we had John, we got to talk about Hoosiers, great Burt Reynolds, Jack Nicholson, Gene Hackman stories. It's funny because afterwards I went and tried to find any Hackman interviews that I could about the making of the movie. And I found one on Letterman that he did. And it's funny because Letterman's like, oh, isn't it great you were in my hometown? Isn't this great? And you could tell Hackman was like, yeah, it was all right. Like he definitely definitely was not full-throated in his support of being in Indiana at the time. But where we left it off with you was just one of the greatest stories of all time, which is having to choose the Sophie's choice of do I go to the Academy Awards to support the movie I made or (laughs) do I watch Indiana play in the national championship game in 1987? And of course, like a good Hoosier, you watch the Hoosiers win the national championship. So we want to pick it up 
there because Ward and I were just talking. Your life couldn't be better at that moment, I'm imagining. I mean, the Indiana wins the national championship and Hoosiers is being recognized at the Academy Awards and it is a box office hit. Is it an overnight thing that your life changes from relative, you know, struggle in the Hollywood game and now you're a star? Walk us through what that was like. Well, you just pinpointed, uh, you know, the, the, the peak of my life. It's been all downhill since. <laughs> <laughs> and now here you are. Oh. I mean, when could we get the Academy Award recognition and Hoosiers winning the national championship on the same night? I mean, come on, that, 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 uh, that will never happen. So it, like Haley's Comet or something. Right, right. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, in, in terms of the after effect, it certainly did. Um, nobody knew me as a writer. Uh, because I'd never written a script before. So uh, all of a sudden I was inundated by script after script or offer after offer. And, and I really didn't want, want to do anything right away. Um, and and I, I certainly didn't want to do anything in the sports field. But um, the, after the success of the initial um, um, uh, screening, uh, the high scores that we got in, in, in the test screenings for Hoosiers, we were approached by Orion Pictures asking David and I to do an overall deal and if there was anything we wanted to do next. Well, we had actually talked about that and I, it, we got to know an IndyCar driver uh, really well named Kevin Kogan. Mm. And, and he told us uh, an interesting story about uh, Mario and Michael Andretti. Mm. which was uh, uh, the beginning of a pitch that we actually sold to Orion. And that um, I, I uh, uh, it was the, the basic premise is that you, that Mario did everything he could to help Michael get into, you know, the uh, get opportunities to, dr to drive the Indy lights or the, the kind of minor league circuit. And then, of course, then getting a ride himself in the IndyCar circuit. But once he started being competitive and actually beating his father, their their relationship soured. Wow. And and I thought, wow, that is a that's a great idea for a story. So I pitched it and sold it. And uh, one of the things that I asked for and I got was I wanted to go on the circuit with Kevin on the IndyCar circuit. And I said, two or three races will, will suffice. I went on the circuit for six months. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I didn't learn anything, I'm telling you, those guys knew how to party. And yeah. I was coming off, I was coasting off of the success of Hoosiers. So, um, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was a sweet, uh, very indulgent time. <laughs> so it actually took, it wasn't like I took immediate advantage of these opportunities. I, I, I did uh, way too much research and it took me about a year and a half to finish it. Well, and yeah, I, I did envision you and Hollywood now being invited to Coke fueled orgies, but instead of indulging in that, you literally left town and you were just partying with racers who had nothing to do with the industry. Um, well, I got back for some of those parties too. <laughs> Let's say it wasn't all or nothing. I would come back occasionally and then fly back to whatever race was nearby. And there were a couple of races in, uh, in California too. But, uh, 
and Kevin was quite the, the, the wild man party goer too. Um, I mean, he was a great racer. He finished second in the 500 one year. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was a time where I was trying to search for my sense of self and my, my place and the business and whether I was really a writer, you know, because when I wrote Hoosiers, honestly, it was going to be a kind of a one-time thing that, you know, this is a story I feel like maybe I can tell better than anybody else. But I never felt that way about any other story. Wow. Uh, and I still haven't in 40 <laughs> scripts later. And, but yet um, uh, I, I still uh, have. And then Rudy changed things a lot, too, because. Well, hold I, on. Don't go to Rudy yet. I, OK, to, I, won't, I won't go to Rudy. Not yet, because yet, let's no. let's just let's stay in the Coke filled orgies and, <laughs> just for a minute, just for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Look, you told us incredible stories about Nicholson and Burt Reynolds. Yeah. I would imagine that you're taking meetings when you're coming back to L.A. and your, your agent is calling you and there's all kinds of conversations happening here. And like you said, some parties and fun. There's got to be like a crazy moment that happened in, in your time visiting L.A. while you were uh, on the indie circuit. But is there some some moment that you remember where you were just at a place and saw a person or interacted with somebody where you were like, I can't believe this is my life now. Yeah. I mean, uh, all of a sudden, uh, the, some of the, the, the people that were, uh, I, I felt I would never have the kind of uh, portfolio or cachet to go up and talk to like a Spielberg or a Coppola uh, or uh, a Scorsese. Uh, I actually, felt confident and I went to parties with these people and I actually had conversations with them and to to a person they had all seen Hoosiers and they all praised it oh. so it gave me an ability to stand there and have a and continue the discussion actually the only person who didn't see it was Coppola you know uh that, that but uh, uh Spielberg and, and Scorsese did and I, I had great talks with him now I'm going to be jumping at real head it's going to be a little bit provocative for you that you, this is a not, this is something you don't know that will surprise you. I actually wrote a script for Scorsese. Okay. What? And you won't believe what it is. It'll really blow your mind. I wrote the sequel to Goodfellas. What? <laughs> yes. No yeah. kidding. I, I knew that would, uh, that would blow the top what? of your head off. Yeah. So, Tell us more. How did that come about? No, well, that, that was that, that's down. The, that's a little bit down the road because we'll, jump, the, we'll, the, we'll be nonlinear. Let's go. Okay. All right. So, um, I I, um, I got a call from someone that I knew that was good friends with Nick Pelleggi. Nick Pelleggi was the writer of Wise Guys, the yeah. original novel in which uh, the Henry Hill story, which turned out to be Goodfellas, was based. And the son and daughter of Henry Hill came to Nick and said, our life in that year in witness protection program is a movie. And he, and he went to, um, to, to Marty and Marty was on board with it. Fine, you know, go to, go find a writer. So I got a call from this guy if I would talk to, to Nick and meet with him. And I, I, I ended up having a great conversation and I flew to uh to new york and one of the things and you you say why me and it wasn't because of my italian surname it wasn't that, that had say, nothing to do with so. it. no no that had nothing to do with it it was about this so um in the in the course of their witness protection 
they w first went to, um, uh, I, I can't remember, it, it was a Kansas City, I think it was Kansas City, it was a larger city. And they, they were there six weeks before uh, Henry was a compulsive gambler. And he went down and he and uh, and and started shooting craps with these guys, you know. And someone just, you know, recognized him. And all of a sudden, FBI found out about. It. They came in and swooped up. They didn't trust him to send him to a big city, so they plop, plop, plopped Henry and his family in a tiny town in Kentucky, Independence, Kentucky, where huh. basketball was king. And they said, "Who could write that world better than this guy?" And and they and he said, my only doubt was, could you write it dark enough? Because you know, they their perception were was that Rudy and Hoosiers were were bright, but they're not bright movies. They're actually both dark movies. And I had just finished a script on Mickey Mantle, which uh, you're going to end up asking me about, and I'll I'll go into a little further length. That was the darkest script I've ever written. Wow. The entire movie takes place in a group therapy session in the Betty Ford Center. And, and, he, and he talks about his past as he's trying to get sober. So uh, when Nick read that script, he thought, you know, the combination of me knowing small towns and small town voices and people, you know, he said, I could never write those people um, you know, who live in, in, in Kentucky. And uh, so uh, we made the deal and uh, I wrote the script. I, I, I think it was really good script. And um, the, both the, the son and daughter loved it. And uh, uh, Marty had just made a deal with Disney to do The Aviator. Mm -hmm. And I actually wrote the script through uh, Disney. And that was, the, that was the deal because he had an overall deal there. And um, he decided to, that he didn't want to go to a small town in Kentucky either. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that wasn't his thing, the world of Hoosiers. Uh, was there any talk of finding another director and doing the movie? Or no, there never was. No, uh, it, it just sort of, you know, like many projects, as you well know, it just goes on into a file and dies there unless somebody becomes the engine. And I, since I didn't own it and I didn't fight for it and, 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 and Nick went on and, and to do a lot of other projects too, uh, it, it, there just wasn't the juice there to have, make it happen. Did you have any interaction with Marty, as they say, over the course of the script? Or where was your feedback coming from? Yeah, so the way in which I work with everybody is the same, which is, uh, you know, and I, 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 I don't talk to um, any a producer, a director, uh, anybody involved in the project between the time I start doing research and the time I finish the script. I don't want other voices uh, in my ear. I need to be free to find the characters and the story myself. Um, came, you know, I would always talk to, I would talk to Nick and, and give reports back, but I never talked to Marty. But I did talk to Marty a couple of times at great length um, about what my plan was and my strategy. And he was completely supportive. And, uh, and, and I talked to him afterwards. He thought I did a great job. You know, he was nothing but complimentary. He didn't actually give me any notes which really concerned me because I thought maybe if he really wanted to make this movie, he'd give me a whole slew of notes. Right. Uh, right. So uh, I knew his head was in the aviator place. So uh, he, he, he kind of, you know, had, he said I had to rush through it because I was shooting all whatever, but uh, you know, we never got back to it and, and it never happened. But uh, 
you know, he's a genius and, and, and I was really um, uh, felt that it was a privilege working for him and doing the story. And it was great working for Henry Hills. Uh, I never talked to Henry Hill, by the way, he was in prison right. and the, his son and daughter did not want me to talk to him. So I told that unlike Goodfellas, which was told from his point of view, my story was told from the point of view of the, of the boy and the girl who were in high school at the time and had to try, these are Long Island kids who tried to had to fit in to this world that was totally alien to them. Was it- And, and the one thing I, I will say, I'm sorry. Was it comedy? Like, was there a lot there of- There were some funny movie? things in it, of course, yeah. you know, because I, I, I see, crazy I see stuff. The comedic version was My Blue Heaven. Was yeah, yeah that's right. 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah that's right. Yeah, you could see it going that way. Yeah, so, and, and one of the reasons I, I didn't, they didn't want me to talk to Henry, but Henry was, only there in their lives about, I mean, a week or two, right. you know, they, and most of the time that year, he was with uh, the FBI, you know, they were downloading him uh, in terms of all his information. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Is, is Scorsese, who, who are you a fan of? Like, I mean, I would imagine you're a fan of Scorsese, but are there other people, were you a Spielberg fan? So conversations with him were, were daunting, but like what, who were you a fan of? Well, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that my heroes are Coppola, uh, you know, who made the two greatest movies in, in English, except Lawrence Arabia. Those are my top three, Lawrence Arabia, Godfather one, Godfather two. Um, uh, it, it's always the brilliant storytellers and, and Spielberg is a brilliant storyteller, you know, uh, and, and um, not all of his films work uh, and, and, um, and he would be the first to admit it. And, and one of the things that he said to me was uh, that his respect for screenwriters is, is preeminent, that, that, that basically he's as good as the script, you know, that, that he works from. And um, it, uh, it, it was it was the same thing that uh, the Coppola said, and, and you know Coppola had a lot of movies that didn't quite work, and you know he kind of lost his way a little bit. But uh, again, you know I, I just have the greatest respect for for these giants, the giants of the business, and uh, and, and I, I've emulated you know a lot of, of what they've done, but. Uh, and, and there wouldn't be a Spielberg or a Coppola or a Scorsese movie that I wouldn't see or haven't seen. Right. And there aren't many. I, I would say less than a handful of directors like that. I wonder with Coppola, because Scorsese still making incredible movies, he, he never stopped. Um, Spielberg, it seemed like it cooled off after like the early mid 90s. The work since then, it was more suspect. But with Coppola, my theory is, and I want to see what you think, is when you're like 29 years old and you have created one of, if not the greatest movie in the history of the English language, then you do it again. And then you do Apocalypse Now in the conversation. You think he's just like, well, I've mastered this. I have nothing left to do in this. And that's, and that's why he starts making wine. Like, I, I sort of feel like he must have just been like, what else do I have left to prove? Well, I mean, there's a lot of theories about why someone, uh, you know, goes through these uh, these arcs of, of success and then failure. And, and I think that there is an element where you don't want to compete against yourself. 
So he's not going to do a big epic gangster film again. He's not, and that's kind of why I never, I really steered away from doing sports films. Uh, and and uh, because my greatest competition is myself. And, and that, that's, that's tough, you know, it, it's like uh, Tennessee Williams wrote this great essay called The Catastrophe, uh, Catastrophe of Success. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's really about, you know, the burden of living up to your big hit. In his case, you know, it was a streetcar named Desire and the pressure, the freedom he felt when he wrote Streetcar and then the pressure he felt whenever, when he wrote subsequent films, it was always going to be uh, not live up to other people's expectations. But I think that Francis really had, a, had such a passion for film that he wanted to explore different ways and different modes of storytelling. And so he kind of just rejected traditional storytelling and started doing experimental kind of movies. Um, I think one of the films that he did was shot almost entirely on a, it was shot entirely on a soundstage and that he wasn't even on the set. He was in a trailer and he was calling the shot. It was called One from the Heart. One from the Heart, the musical. That. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, listen, you, you, he, he's an artist and, and he wanted to explore different ways of, of, of utilizing his art and exploring. He also his became consumed with trying to remake the industry. You know, he wanted American Zone. Well, he did that at the beginning, but I think yeah. that he realized you know, he was up against a force so much bigger than than who he was and what he could do. He had zoetrope, is what you're talking yeah. about. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, a lot of the films that he supported, they just kind of they were of the time and they had a niche audience, but it, it wasn't self it wasn't sustaining. So no. he had to let it go. We know, because you told us about the relationship with Hackman, that it wasn't good while shooting. And then you saw him afterwards when he had to do some ADR work and you had to basically audition for him to come back and do the ADR work, which he did. And the movie obviously was a huge success for him too and catapulted his career, which you know was a bit of a roller coaster in, in, in those years. Were there any other people on the in the cast that you became friendly with? Did, did you and Dennis Hopper have a relationship uh, on the set and then afterwards? I'm just curious, Barbara Hershey, any of the, the folks in the movie? Okay, I can go through them one by one because <laughs> they're all different and, and, and uh, radically different. Okay. Uh, I described Gene and, and I will tell you that ESPN did a series on uh, the making of certain sports movies. I don't know if you can access it, but uh, they inter they got Gene to interview, and he talked quite a bit about his experience in working on the film. And of course, it was revisionist. Sure, you know? <laughs> it wasn't exactly you know what we experienced with him. Yeah, he didn't say. <laughs> but it, but, but there was elements of it. There was elements of. I mean, he did say, "I didn't quite believe in these guys," you know, but he, he softened it. Um, in terms of Barbara, um, Barbara was one of the most difficult people I've ever worked with in my life. Wow. And, and um, I, I, you know, I, the, the first thing that she did when she showed up on the set, and let me go back and, and, and talk about, uh, you know, how we came about uh, casting her. Originally, she was not cast as, as uh, Myra Fleener. Uh, that role um, went to, um, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm going to blank. Uh, I'm in, on the, uh, I'm going to get to it. I'll remember it before sure. this podcast is over. Um, but she's a wonderful actress and she's much more fitting. She was closer in age to, uh, to Jean. 
she was in her 40s and um she she just looked better and fit better and she was a better actress than uh, <clears throat> uh barbara it's gonna drive me crazy you know that when i'm talking about <laughs> yeah it. i get it and, and um um so uh she's if you're there with a computer she she's married to tommy schlammy who's a oh, you know a director I know who that is. I know who you that know is. what i'm talking about okay hold on i got it you got it i'm gonna get it yeah i just had a conversation with somebody we we're talking about tommy schlammy who is a a know, wonderful maybe, yeah sitcom maybe, one of the great sitcom directors of yeah, all time. And, yeah and then the drama director he became yeah that's true yeah did a lot of west wing episodes west wing yeah yeah that's true uh tommy shalami's wife christine lottie christine lottie thank you thank you thank you now christine uh, i actually did a whole pass for her we had multiple meetings very bright and and great ideas and um i expanded the script you know, for her. And I, you know, yeah, I, I <clears throat> if you read the original script or saw the original, it, it, you, th I mentioned the two CD set uh, yes. that we had 30 minutes uh, cut out of the movie. Yes. Well, two of the scenes are between the coach and Myra Fleener, uh, Norman Dale and Myra Fleener that we cut out of the movie. And th those, and I had really written a, a full arc of that relationship between those two that made a lot more sense, uh, but we had to cut because we were so long. And, um, and, 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 and Christine really helped me in writing those scenes. I think it was like 10 days before we started principal photography, right when she was ready to get on the plane to come there to begin rehearsals and read-throughs that she called me up and she said, you know, my personal life is in real dire straits. She didn't say it, but I think her marriage was starting to fall apart with Tommy. And she said, I gotta stay here to save it. And, um, and, and, and so she said, I can't, I can't come back. So we started scrambling, trying to you know, figure out who are we gonna cast? Well, it just so happened that Barbara had, um, was in Hannah and her sisters and she, you know, she, she got you know, recognition and you know, David really liked her as an actress. I was never a huge fan, but you know, she she was solid. I thought she was too young and too pretty for for that character uh, for Jean. I didn't think it was a, a perfect match. Jean really when we we started going through all these possible uh, actresses, Tess Harper was the person I was kind of rooting for. She was the she was the wonderful uh, uh, wife of or she was in Tender Mercies with Robin Hall. Mm -hmm. And and um, and David liked her too, but when when um, Gene found out that that Barbara was was a potential, he went all in on her. And, <laughs> and or so in order to kind of placate and and you know make him happy because he was not happy at the time. Okay, I finally exceeded. Let's make it work. Well, Barbara shows up on the set, and uh, I, I mean shows up, and we go out to dinner. And um, the first day, she's talking all about Woody this and Woody that, and Woody's going to make a movie for me. And you know, she was just so full of herself and uh, and impossible. Uh, and, and she said, "I need to talk to you because I've done some I've done some work on my dialogue." And when mm -hmm. I heard that, I went, "What?" <laughs> I mean, it was like work on my dialogue. Yeah. So I met with her the next day, and she pulls out her script. She has rewritten all of her lines. Ooh. I mean, almost every one. 
Uh, and and you know, some actresses are and some actors are really good ear for dialogue, and 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 they try to wrap their 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 so they can wrap their uh, mouth around it and say it in their own way. Well, she had a tin ear for dialogue. It was terrible. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and 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 David read it and agreed, and even Jean read it and agreed. So we had to have a conference, and and it was like the, the my co-producer and myself, and it, and she was pissed. You know, and she was really upset at me um, that we had to go back to to my original line. So this is what happened. On the first day of principal photography for her, we were in the downtown square and she was loading um, some stuff on into the car sure. talk with her mother and yeah. we're having this conversation. And um, I was there with David and we went through the various, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the master shot rehearsals and, and everything. I just wanted to make sure everything was all right, the dialogue is working and so on. And so once it was working, I went back and I was probably 50 yards away because I had to rewrite a scene because of a location change for the next day. And I was like, uh, I was writing and I would look up and I would, I, you know, once the master was shot and they were doing over the shoulders and close-ups, I just kept on looking up and, and watching every occasionally. So at the end of the, that particular scene, I go up and to Barbara, I said, you were great and, uh, you know, whatever, you know, try to, you know, mend the, the, the bad vibes between the two of us. She looked at me and with the most hateful stare and turned around and walked away. And I, I was like shocked, what happened? So uh, the, the co-producer, uh, Carter DeHaven, um, went after her and, and, and then he came back. He said, look, we got a problem. She said that you were staring. She was, I was looking at her and frowning at her performance. <laughs> I was frowning at her performance. And um, she will not act if you're on the set. Oh, oh my God. Yes, yes. She refuses to come out if you're on the set. What we did, so we worked a compromise. Uh, the compromise was I, and what, this is just with Barbara, okay? Mm -hmm. I would be there through and, and uh, for the rehearsal and the, the blocking. And then once shooting started, I had to be out of her eyeline. If she caught me in her eyeline, she would, she would stop and not act until I was gone. So I had to deal with that the entire picture. Uh, and what she said a couple, she said a couple of things. She said, you realize that I think the script is terrible. <laughs> and, and, and he said, and I think this whole show is rinky dink. And I, I have no, and this director doesn't know what he's doing. He said, I only took this job because Gene Hackman is the, one of the greatest actors working today. And I wanted to work with him, but there's nothing else about this I like. And, and she carried that attitude all the way through the script. I mean, all the way through the shoot of the movie. So I hardly talked to her at all. Uh, I, I gotta say though, Angelo, it kind of worked. She was a dour personality yeah, that, that had that no her. humor to her. That was her. That was, we, we didn't know, but we cast a type, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so she, she was so um, disrespectful of David that after certain scenes, like when she got up and, and, and had to speak in behalf of the coach at the church, when mm -hmm. coach stays that one, um, 
she did her first take, the master take, and she and David came up to to talk to her about it, and she walked right past and and went to Jean and said, "So how did I do?" Oh. That was the kind of thing that she we had to deal with. So when we we came back, uh, to, we put the the the. I told you the story about how we we cut the long version and we kept the scenes, all the scenes with them, and then. We had to make the, the many Sophie's choices along the way of getting it down to two hours. And we had to cut two critical scenes between them that really bridged the gap between the scene, the, the scene that I don't remember what the scene, but the scene they kissed. It, 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 this kiss always seemed jarring because those transition scenes building to that weren't there. Well, when she saw this final cut with those scenes cut, she said to her agent and to her uh, publicist, I refuse to do anything connected to this movie. Uh, I will not, anybody ask me about it, I refuse to talk about it. In any interview, I will not do any marketing, any publicity, nothing. And um, it, 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 it just so happened that I, I uh, was in, in, a, in a, at a restaurant, La Dome, you remember La Dome? And, uh, sure. And she was sitting with, with a friend of mine, uh, Michael York, uh, another really wonderful British actor. And it was, a, it was a table, a group of table. And Michael said, oh, Angelo, I saw your movie. It was great. Congratulate. And, and, and I saw Barbara and she was like two seats over and she stiffened. She, she stiffened. And I, I came over, good to see you. He said, and he looked, he looked, oh, this is Angelo. He said, oh, Barbara, you were in the movie, right? <laughs> Do you know Angelo? And she said, and she, this is what she did. She just, uh, she didn't acknowledge that, that he actually, actually, she looked away. Oh. She would not speak to me. So that's my Barbara Hershey uh, the, um, uh, experience. I, I want to ask you before we move on to like Hopper, but do you look back at it and regret her being in the movie? Or do you look back at it and go, well, it ended up being great and there was chemistry and it worked for the movie or knowing what you know now, would you go back and put somebody else in it? You know, it's really hard when people ask that, that question, you know, uh, the movie works and, and, and why a movie works is always a mystery. It's a little right. bit like alchemy. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're, you're a chef and you're putting a lot of ingredients in a pot and, and, and the chemical interactions are always different. And I mean, you could always second guess yourself about casting in particular, but uh, as you mentioned, uh, the movie seems to work. So I, I, sh <laughs> I, should, I shouldn't, uh, Don't you look know. Don't a gift horse in the mouth. It, 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 yeah, it, it, for, for whatever reason, and we may just, uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of success of films is, is luck, uh, sure. really, uh, you know, and, and uh, we'll, we'll end up talking about the third movie we did together uh, after Rudy, uh, which is the game of their lives, the soccer movie. And I can tell you in the first two movies, Hoosiers and Rudy, it was like everything that could have gone wrong went right. It was like we were, uh, we were in the God loop or something. It was like, uh, we, everything just fell into place. It was, it was, and I, I don't even, we were lucky. We really were lucky in casting and, and, and not just the cast, but the crew as well. And in the third movie where we should have learned that we knew we had the experience of making first two movies, we should have gone in there and just killed that one. It's like, 
the opposite happened. As someone described uh, our third movie is, you went to the karma bank and found out you were overdrawn. And, uh, and, and everything that went well and that we were in we were lucky with uh in the first two movies we were the exact opposite and the last movie everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong and, Look, and, and part is, of it was our problem a part of their part of it was a, a few mistakes we made and part of it was just circumstance and and, and conditions beyond our control so We'll get to that later, but uh, sure. you wanted to talk about Dennis Hopper. Dennis was a beautiful human being, really? and uh, and and he saved our lives in terms of coming on to the uh, set when he did, because he was the person that made uh, uh, Gene Hackman laugh. He was the only time I ever saw Gene smile or laugh was when he was Dennis. Dennis Dennis was funny. He was sweet. Um, he had a big heart, and he totally believed in what we were doing. You know, and I and he advocated for us to to uh, Dennis. I mean, to to Gene. So he softened Gene's attitude toward us. And um, in, in a lot of what I what I was talking about in terms of luck, we originally had uh, Harry Dean Stanton uh, slated for that role. Yeah, I think you told and, us. And that. and and Harry Dean, ha you know, has one or two colors, and they're mostly dark. They're mm -hmm. dark and funny and whimsical, but they are dark. Well, Dennis brought that character that was written kind of one-dimensionally to a, 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 it was like a rainbow of colors. You know, he had sweetness and vulnerability and, and a kind of a rawness and, and, uh, and, and um, you wanted to take care of Dennis in a, in a way, because, you know, he had been like a year and a half sober and he was vulnerable. He was in a vulnerable, vulnerable place. Uh, and, um, he was nuts, but in a sweet way. And, 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 and as I said, his brain uh, did not function well in terms of remembering lines. And he yeah, would just, he would just start spinning lines. And I mentioned to you about don't getting, watching the paint dry. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I went back and looked at the script uh, and, and to remember what line I did write. And I found out I didn't write any line. There was no line there. <laughs> so it was like, we, he was supposed to give the instructions about the picket fence and then they were supposed to break and go out. And all of a sudden he, and I remember this now, he comes out with, okay, boys, don't get caught much in the paint dry. And, and I, we asked him, where'd that come from? He said, I, I don't know. And my father used to tell it to me or whatever. But ultimately he said, I think it was because I think that the, 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 the players kept on watching me like I should have said more. So that's <laughs> why I said it. But that's what oh, I was That's serendipity. That is yes. luck. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and when I hear you talk about the luck and the serendipity and the chemistry, the alchemy, it's hard not to draw an analogy with s sports where all oh, oh, look at all these guys we have. We should be a great team, but it Absolutely. just doesn't come together or it does. And then there's an injury, something, you know, uh, uh, totally beyond your control that derails what would be great. I'm wondering with somebody like Dennis, and I know this is your guys first movie. So you're just trying to get through each day and, and make your days, but he was in rebel without a cause. He directed easy rider. Did he, was there any time for him to regale you with these incredible stories of, of his career up to that point or, or was it too much work? No, of course, you know, it, he was so generous with the, the stories. Of course, he was part of our generation and, and, and our, the culture change and, 
and uh, you know, he, you know, he would answer and regale us with all sorts of stories. But he did apologize. <laughs> you know, he did this one movie called The Last Movie, which yeah. he directed and was in. That was a total disaster, and why he kind of never directed again until he got sober 10, 20 years, or 15 years later. And he said, I wish I could tell you more stories on it, but I was so drugged out during the entire movie that I hardly remember being in Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) You guys, did you ever have memory issues? Did you, did James Dean ever come up? Because it's a small town. Oh my gosh, all the time. Right? He loved him. They were very, very close friends. And the reason he talked about James Dean was because of Indiana. Because when we were there, by the way, when he was here shooting, he drove up uh, to Fairbanks where, where uh, you know, uh, James uh, Dean was raised and played basketball and, met, and, and, and spent time with, with his family and his relatives, oh, the remaining cool. relatives. So yes, uh, James Dean was an extremely important uh, part of his life. And he talked about all uh, James Dean's stories and all the ways in which he impacted his life. It, it's cool. pretty funny because he was very close to James Dean and loved him. James Dean and Marlon Brando were the guys that ushered in an entire new era in, in Hollywood. Obviously, James Dean was taken long before, before Brando. But then Dennis Hopper works with Brando on Apocalypse Now, and Brando won't be in the same room as him. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like the stories that you hear from that and the documentary about Apocalypse Now, which I recommend if anybody is a it's fan great. of old Hollywood. Yeah. Heart of Darkness. Um, Heart of Darkness yeah. is just remarkable. But I've watched some interviews with Hopper talking about Brando, and he just laughs about it. Like, yeah. <laughs> would not Brando would not allow Dennis Hopper to be in the same room as him. Now, probably because Hopper was a drugged out maniac at the time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Dennis Hopper is like this, this weird figure in Hollywood that does go from James Dean through Hoosiers and beyond speed with Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock and just keeps going. He is, I, and I just, I just watched the movie Waterworld over the weekend. Where <laughs> wow. He is the villain. I know long story, but he's the villain in that. And he's just so much fun to watch. He really is. Like, and I remember forever. I mean, I remember every scene he was in in Hoosiers, but the scene, the great moment where he says to Hackman, to Coach Dale, you just got to promise me you're not going to get thrown out any more games, you know, right Right. after Hackman's like drying him out, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just, and and this is a credit to you because in this like very dark moment, I mean, this is the guy totally falling off the wagon and his life could go any which way. He, he, you, you find this moment that he brings to life to inject humor and levity into this, incredibly dark moment it it is what separates that movie from just being a sports movie i i actually hate it when people say oh it's the best sports movie ever i'm like yes it is but it's not the sports movie it is one of the best movies ever made like it's just a movie. thank you so much yeah uh um i'll I'll share a, a a thought about that in when we talk about rudy sure but um the the thing that uh yeah the other connected tissue that i thought about uh, or the connecting uh cord um is the fact that um hoosiers wouldn't have happened without jack nicholson um first reading it and bringing all of the attention and force of our our agency to it and it was 
Dennis that made Jack's career by hiring him for Easy Rider. Wow. And they were close friends, you know, at the time. Wow. So, you know, it was like... Um, did Dennis know, did you ever talk to Dennis about Jack being up for the role? Oh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you know what he said? He said, I love Jack. I, I said, I love Jack, but he said, it would have been a Jack Nicholson movie. Mm. And Gene is the right guy. He's the right guy. You, you he said, you lucked out not getting Jack and, and no matter how brilliant it, and he, and he had nothing but admiration uh, for his acting ability. But, you know, he said he would have overpowered. This would not be an uh, uh, ensemble film. It would be mm -hmm. a Jack Nicholson film. And it makes a good point. Did you stay in touch with Dennis over the years? Yes. In fact, the reason we did, and he, was to, he used to have a Super Bowl party uh, every year. And he would invite us to this beautiful place that he lived in Memphis. He was a great artist, art, art collector and photographer. And we went on the set a number of times uh, to support him in, in, in uh, I think it was Colors that, that he did um, in, in LA. And yeah, we maintained, we saw him at the West Peach Cafe, it used to be, that's used to, we used to be called, uh, now it's called something else, it's something at the beach. But uh, yeah, we saw Dennis all the time and we were socially a part of his life, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I, I, I was living on Miracle Mile and his art studio was a couple blocks away. And yeah. there was a coffee shop I would see him in. And uh, in time in L.A., as you know, you, you don't really get starstruck anymore. But when I'd be behind him in line, I just I never could say anything to him. I could never approach him. I was just in awe of this man who encompassed, like Eric said, like so much of the history of the industry and the artistry. And honestly, the moment when he jumps up in the bed in celebration oh. Oh. is, is the movie, the, the, the part of the movie that stuck with me the longest and the deepest for, you know, whatever, how many 30 plus years it's been. That's, that's always the moment I think of first when I think of Hoosiers. So um, I don't know if I mentioned this before uh, about that particular scene, you know, but, 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 but he, here's, uh, I, I don't, if, I, Eric, you uh, you have my script, my my long bilge of a I script. I did send it to Ward too, though. I did. Okay. Send oh yeah, that's it. fine. We're both okay. gonna read it. The 194 awesome. ver page version. <laughs> well, all the way to um, through the entire process of the movie, uh, making the movie, and up to about four or five days before we were shooting the final scenes in Hinkle Fieldhouse. I had in the script, the character of Shooter escapes from the hospital and shows up in the locker room. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and he's part of getting those guys to go. I, I don't remember. You could read the script. I don't remember yeah. if he actually, I think he has one line of dialogue. By the way, know? spoiler alert. Thanks, Angelo. <laughs> oh yeah, right. That's going to ruin it for you. Uh, so uh, so <clears throat> Dennis, came up to me and David and said, <clears throat> this really bothers me um, because, and, and Dennis has you know, struggled with sobriety all his life. And he had been now a year and a half, two years sober. And he said, for us to believe that he is going in the right direction, he can't leave that hospital room. Mm. You know, wow. and, and I want to support his sobriety and his choice 
And, and when you go in for that kind of support system and, and, and got kind of a lockdown situation, you know, he's going against protocol and I don't want, I, I feel that's wrong. And it's mm-hmm. up to you. I mean, he, he didn't fight for it, but as soon as he said it, we knew he was right. And so we, we, we came that's up- That's what you with, mean. That's, that's the serendipity. Yeah. That's the alchemy. Like that that's moment, right. it like, thank God he said something because he, he yeah. might not have. Like he might've respected you guys too much or, and you're near the end. Yeah, like, it's true. Just with it. But that moment, that moment, has stuck with Ward for 35 years. You know, and, 30 you know Dennis, Dennis had very few notes, uh, you know, and very few suggestions uh, in terms of ideas like that. So we had to take him seriously. And then we thought about it more and more. And we realized that, you know, he was right. He was absolutely, you know, this is the white, white right way of thinking about it. So we had to kind of add the scene where he's listening to the radio and jumping up and down in bed. So. You know, I, I just want to put this out, and this is kind of rude because this both these guys are, are dead. But I watched the Siskel and Ebert review of Hoosiers. Yeah. I watched it recently. Have you ever seen this? I mean, I saw it when it came out, yeah. but I know, I know Siskel didn't like it, and Ebert did. Ebert right? loved it, and Ebert yeah. was like, it's going to be nominated for Academy Awards. Yeah. And Siskel did not like it, but he, with all due respect, he was just totally wrong. And I don't mean like, look, anybody can like a movie or not like a movie, but here's what he said. The first thing he said was, it's so unrealistic. I'm, fr- <laughs> he said, I'm from uh, Illinois. I know Indiana and that team, that small team would have gotten killed in the state championship. <laughs> so that's the first thing he said in the review. That's the first thing. The next is he goes, it's just too much on the Normandale character. He rehabs himself. He rehabs the, the, the basketball team. He fixes Dennis Hopper's character. And I'm like, you idiot. He didn't fix Dennis Hopper's character. Mm-hmm. Like Dennis Hopper kept falling down. And then at the end, it's another time he got back up, but he's not fixed. He's on this long road. Mm-hmm. And the, the, that's what, like, I remember seeing the movie and thinking, oh, this isn't like all those other like Disney sports movies where everything is, yes, they win the game, but like he's got a long road to go, you know? And and clearly Gene Hackman's character still had demons, you know? And I, that's what I loved about it, that these people were really fully fleshed out characters. Well, you know, I mentioned that uh, whenever people, someone says, gee, uh, you know, Hoosiers and Rudy are so uh, inspirational and up- inspiring and uplifting and so on and so forth. And I'm thinking, well, at the end, you know, but the rest <laughs> of the- <laughs> before that, you were two hours of misery, honestly. Absolutely yeah, right. And in Hoosiers, it, you're talking about a collection of really screwed up guys, <laughs> screwed, up girl, <laughs> screwed up characters, people. Yes. And and uh, you know who are stuck and are neurotic and uh, they they they're 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 unhappy miserable people. Yes, even uh, even poor Jimmy, poor Jimmy Chitwood. I mean, the miserable. dude can't even spit two words out. Like now we know it's because Angelo didn't think that he could cast good basketball players as actors, but right. poor Jimmy couldn't communicate like a normal human being. Well, and then the character of the town and the townspeople and this small town Indiana thing that I'm certainly very familiar with, where it's just like, oh, yeah, there's there's something that can be very toxic 
about a community that small uh, obsessed with one particular sport in this case and throughout the state of Indiana, it's basketball and that they all had to see it from a different point of view from this outside point of view. But that's all stuff that I think to fly in the face of what, what Siskel was saying. And I don't know how they do it in Illinois, but all that stuff rang so profoundly true in Hoosiers. And I, and it's just, speaks to the the universal nature of it it's like sure yeah as they first thought when you guys were making and it was coming out it was just going to be this provincial movie but there's something in each of those characters in that town in the mindset that was so universal that allowed it to be such a great success well again um uh, it was uh, alchemy you know it was uh, it was the right cast and the in the right crew and the right combination of factors and you know maybe and I, and I think back and, and a, a question I, that I, I've, I've thought about um, is our original cut, which was two hours and 30 minutes long. If that, mo- if that was the cut that went out, would it have sustained hmm. for this long a time, 35 years later? And, you know, not to toot my own horn, but it was voted the best sports film of all time last year by the LA Times, right? Yeah. Would it would, would that have happened if we had that two hour and 28 minute movie? Here's Maybe what you not. do. You do it like Coppola. You just re-release it every few years yeah. with different cuts. You just see how they play. They yeah. can never take away what, what that one was. The Angelo cut. The <laughs> Angelo cut. Yeah. It's so, a Hoosier's redux. Listen, we're in a business where you strike while the iron is hot because you have no idea how quickly it's going to cool off. But you didn't really. I mean, you took some time. You were doing some other projects. Did you not feel pressure to, I mean, you said like you weren't even sure you were a writer at the time, but what did you, when, when you kind of got to take in the success of Hoosiers and all these opportunities coming at you, was the IndyCar thing the next thing that, that you just wanted to do because you had a passion for it? Yeah. I mean, I growing up in Bloomington, um, I, we went to the 500 every year. Uh, I think I went to like 20 straight years. That was my longest streak. And I knew the world and, and, um, and we knew drivers. And, and so I, uh, I, I just thought that no one had ever done a successful race car film. I mean, there were some enjoyable ones like Grand Prix that were great in the Cinerama situation. But, you know, the, the thing we had going against us. And Bobby making- Deerfield. Yeah, but that's not really a racing film. No, and it's terrible. And it's yeah, terrible. It, it's bad. Yeah. So the, the biggest thing we had going against us is that um, there had never been a race car movie that made money. So uh, it, the perception was nobody wanted to watch cars going around the track. It was too boring. And But my, the case I made, and, and I felt really uh, strongly about my script that it was different, was the reason that no race car movie had made money was because there'd never been a good race car movie made. Mm. <laughs> uh, and, and, but you know, that argument fell on deaf ears and uh, we, we had uh, two chances to make it. Orion would have said, we'll make it if, uh, if Redford or Newman t- uh, says yes. And they both passed. And then, you know, the budget at the time was ridiculously high. And, and because you, there was no CGI, you couldn't do the computer stuff you can do now. That budget, I think was probably close to a hundred million. Wow. I think you could do that same movie for 40 million and shoot most of it in a computer and you know, right. your you know, CGI. So, were, were you, um, 
your ego, your whatever you want to call it, when that movie didn't get made, which is the thing you want to follow up Hoosiers with, were you surprised? Was there any part of you that was like, wait a minute, we did Hoosiers. How come this isn't easier now? I'd been in the business long enough on the other side of the desk that I knew that it took so many tumblers to fall into place in order to open up that that lock to get movies made. I mean, so many things had to go right. And it was so, so challenging and difficult that honestly, it surprised me. It surprises me when movies do get made. Right. It <laughs> surprised me when movies don't get made. Uh, so I, I kind of expected it. Uh, and, and I knew it was going to be a big budget film. And in order for a big budget film to be made, um, certainly at that time, we're not talking about, you know, Marvel right now, but you had to have a big star. And so that, that reduced the chances of, of getting a movie made if you only have two people that have the power to say yes or no, and they're actors. So I knew it was a long shot, um, but uh, you know, it was the movie I wanted to write and, and, uh, and, and David wanted to direct and uh, we took our shot. But, uh, you know, I ended up doing some work on some, I did a rewrite on a movie called Navy Seals. When oh, I was sure. Because we had an overall deal. Well, it was, I, it. I was totally wrong for that movie, but uh, they had this idea, oh, I wrote great characters for Hoosiers. And here we have this, you know, action adventure film that's all about, uh, um, uh, it's, all, it's all about, you know, these cardboard characters. You can develop these characters more. I mean, I, I was like the fourth writer on and, and it was a, a really interesting two months. I did a multiple, many drafts on it. I didn't get credit in the end, which was just fine with me. Uh, but uh, I went to uh, the training grounds where, where the, the SEALs uh, uh, learned how to do their thing. And, uh, and I went on location scouts uh, with the director so I could work with them in Spain and Israel. And uh, we, were, we were basically carted around the country with the, by the military and saw installations of places no one would ever see. That was a amazing, amazing, powerfully intense experience. And then I have to, there were this cast, Charlie Sheen and, mm -hmm. and Michael Bean were cast, cast as the leads. And I had to meet with uh, each one of those guys. and. Uh, that was that was they were not in good shape they you were not in good shape they were not <laughs> in good shape. well you know cocaine was big at the time that's all like cocaine's <laughs> a hell of a drug and and, uh, and and when here's my meeting with charlie so um you know he came in with this you know this uh the script and uh, you know his his hand was shaking and he was sweating and he put it down and every one of his notes was about guns it was all about, I think we need an A40 instead of a P54. We need this <laughs> grenade instead of, I said, what about the character? I don't care about, I just did this for the, uh, the, the, the ammunition and the guns and all that. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's how freaky that guy was. <laughs> Crazy person. Crazy person. Uh, well, mean, at, at least he's consistent. At least he's been keeping that up for the better part of 30 years. Let, but, me, let me say this. That was in the... In, in my, when did I, I uh, uh, who's, in my 40 plus years of, of now being a, a screenwriter and filmmaker, I never did another rewrite. Really? I turned every single rewrite down. Because you because hated the process? I, I, I didn't, I was not, I could not bring what I 
the best of myself if the character's already been created. Mm. I could only do what I do best if I create the characters from the inside out. But if they already have voices and they're fully kind of dimensional or not dimensional, I have to make them more dimensional. I didn't want to be that kind of writer. I just didn't want to live that life and, and be the script doctor thing. So um, I did technically do two rewrites, but they were on scripts that I never read. But I liked, I said to the, I, they, 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 uh, they pitched me the idea and this needs a lot of work. I, and, I, and the deal I made was I'll do the rewrite as a, as a page one but I won't read the script. Wow. Did either so, get made? I'm sorry? Did either of those get made? No, neither one did. Got it. I when do wonder though, when you're, you're spending six months on the indie racing circuit or you're going around the world escorted by the US military. Or the Israeli military. Or the Israeli military. <laughs> scary. Uh, did, you, did you just, you're, you're a small, small town guy from Bloomington you came out to Hollywood you conquered that place and now and now this is your life this is research were you just loving that were you like oh yes I'm getting to see the world and meet these people and do all these things because of my success or was it always like okay but I'm I'm, I'm just doing this so I can go back and get another another movie made I would say I can answer that question in two ways. One is, was it exciting and was it fun? All those things, yes. It was, it, did I feel like I deserved it or belonged there? Not really. I felt like, you know, in, in part that I, as a writer, I knew, I knew my stuff as a filmmaker because I'd worked on many other films in the six years before making Hoosiers. I knew my stuff. But as a creator, as a primary creator, I always thought that Hoosiers may be my only script. And if I wrote anything else, I'd be found out as a fraud. Mm. That, that, you know, I was going to be some, I was going to be discovered as not knowing <laughs> what I was doing. Right. And when, when you read my original draft of Hoosiers, you will probably agree with that assessment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I, and, and the nature of the film business is it's so um, mercurial, you know, and you, you can have this great success and then it goes. I mean, I've had so many friends who, who were shooting stars, you know, who, who just had the, you know, hits and wonderful things happen. And then, then it didn't. And then they're out of the business. So um, I, I knew I could sustain a career in, as a development executive I didn't necessarily believe I could sustain a career as a screenwriter or a filmmaker. I didn't believe that I necessarily had the stuff to keep on keeping on. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until Rudy was made that I felt these are two movies that I can get work off of for a while. But my, you know, honestly, the for a while meant two or three years. Right. Hmm. Well, let's... I thought, that, I thought that, that that probably after two or three years, this would, you know, these movies would go on the shelf or, you know, in the dustbin of film history and, and people would forget about them. So let's, uh, let's hit Rudy. So give us the genesis for how that, where did that kernel start? So I got a call from uh, a friend of mine named Don Stratagos. We call him Strats. And he said, Uptown Cafe. Uptown Cafe. Yes, that's exactly right. And he Wasn't said, he a referee in Hoosiers? He was a referee. Gosh, that's amazing. You know that. <laughs> he was a referee in Hoosiers. He was also 
in uh, Rudy. He was the high school football right. coach. Yep. So, uh, yeah, he threw Gene Hackman out of a game. That, right, that's right. What he did. <laughs> but uh, he was also the basketball coordinator. You know, he, he played uh, with Mike Warren at South Bend Central and, and really knew his stuff. And so the, we had him. He was kind of our team guy, you know, uh, tell the, all the guys what, what to do basketball-wise. And um, so he called me and said, listen, I have this story I got to tell you about this guy who came into my brother's, his brother was working as a manager at a hotel or a motel in South Bend and found out that he was related to a guy that was in Hoosiers and he wanted to get to us, Rudy did. Rudy Rudiger wanted to get in contact with us because he felt we were the guys to make his story. And Rudy um, pitched this story to the brother, the brother pitched it to Strats, Press, you know, called, you know, pitched it to David and I, and, uh, and, and David was intrigued by it because he grew up in Fort Wayne and was really, uh, was a Notre Dame fan. Well, I said, absolutely not interested at all. Growing up in Bloomington, I hated Notre Dame. <laughs> Good man. Good man. And, uh, and, and uh, still do, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so hate is too strong a word. I, I'm, I, I've always rooted against them. Except the year that Rudy came out, I was, you know, they were up for a national championship. I thought we could go two for two. There you go, it. Just lost at last game against Boston College, or we would have, we would have had two national championships in the two movies that we did, commensurate with the sport. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, the other thing is, I really was sensitive about the niche thing. About mm -hmm. I didn't want to do another sports movie set in Indiana. I knew that I would definitely be pigeonholed. So I rejected it out of hand, but Rudy got a hold of us, got a hold of our uh, our number, and would just start being Rudy, calling us relentlessly. And David indulged him; I didn't. Um, but you know, Rudy is such a, a a lot of who Rudy is is just never hearing the word no, and you know that that's kind of what is admirable about his character in a sense in, in the movie. But it can be a little obnoxious. Okay. <laughs> well, let me just say that uh, uh, Rudy didn't befriend a lot of you know everybody that he came across. You know, uh, and he would push too hard and and not be sensitive about uh, hearing the word no. So uh, David was amused by it. I was amused by it, but I wasn't indulging him. Uh, and but he would send material and send material. He actually came out to, uh, and this is one of his famous stories, was he, he um, I, I felt that I, I, I said, I figured out a way to get rid of Rudy. <laughs> I'm going to have a sit down with him and I'm going to tell him unequivocally that we are not doing this movie and, and, and just face to face and, and say, please don't keep on pushing this story. So, um, and and uh, the the meeting was set for a, a, um, a restaurant about four or five blocks from where I lived in Santa Monica, and I had totally forgotten about it. Uh, it was at noon on a Saturday. Well, I went out to a party Friday night, and <laughs> one I of those was, one of those Coke one of those party. one of those parties. Okay, <laughs> um, and uh, it was like one o'clock. I was still in bed, and I hear pounding on the my front door. And, uh, and I open it up and I have no idea who it is. He said, hey, it's Rudy. I said, oh my God, I was supposed to meet you at Louise's right up the street. I'm so sorry. And then I realized 
how did you know where I live? <laughs> he talked the mailman into giving me an address and said it was an emergency and that some family member was sick. I mean, it was some crazy story. And I did, you know, I went up and I really laid it on the line. I said, Rudy, this is not going to happen. I'm not going to do this story. And I gave all for all the reasons. Um, and um, and I, he heard me and he said, could you help me find another writer? And I said, I don't really know uh, another writer working in this field. And and I did say I did try to placate him and said, I, I will. I'll check around. But, you know, uh, you need to hear this from me. That this is not a door you can keep on knocking on and, and hoping, you know, that I'll literally. Uh, yeah, <laughs> literally. Yes, it's true. Uh, and, um, and, and, and that was it, except something weird happened. And, you know, this, this talk about meant to be. And that is David, and this was probably almost a year later, maybe six months later, David had a meeting with a producer uh, who had an overall deal at Columbia Pictures and the producer was pitching David a baseball movie and and they started to talk about sports stories okay v very sports story and and um, David brought up the Rudy story and uh, this producer whose name was Rob Freed said I just had lunch with the president of Columbia Pictures named Frank Price and you go into his office, you see all this Notre Dame memorabilia. And he said, he didn't even go to Notre Dame. He went to Michigan State. He said, one of the greatest regrets in his life was, was being turned down Notre Dame. Oh. He said, this may be a perfect pitch to this guy. And I'm thinking, this is not a studio film. Rudy's not a student. No one is going to buy it. He's, I, I mean, there's not a chance in the world that he's going to buy this. Uh, oh, I, so, I got the, so I got a call from David and this producer and saying, come in and pitch the story. I said, I'm not going to, I don't want to do this. You, you have to understand what, how many times do I have to say no? Well, he's only interested in the team that did Hoosiers. So will you show up to the office and sit in the meeting and David will do the pitch? I, because I refused to pitch it because I knew I couldn't be sincere in selling it. And David, tremendous job of pitching this. And what happened in that office, I actually have never been a part of before, uh, which is in all these kind of pitch meetings, they say at the end, thank you very much, we'll let you know. And because he was in there with his minions, his VPs. And, sure. um, you gotta make them feel important. You gotta well, get their yeah, opinion that, and, you know, Nobody wants to give an off the cuff answer, yes or no, usually. And they, they kind of, it's just, you know, it, yep. it, it, you'll never get the yes in the room, you know, but, uh, uh, and this is the only time it happened. He didn't even look at it, talk to his minions. After Dave was done, he leaned over his desk and he said, I can't wait to see this movie. And all of a sudden it hit me, oh my God, they're expecting me to write this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we walk out and the, and the producer says, you MF, you're right. You're right. <laughs> and David said, "You're right in this movie." And we got on the phone with Rudy, and and uh, and and uh, Rudy said, "Okay, coach." He calls everybody coach. He said, "I know. I this is a good way to approach it. Just think, you know, my dream and passion for Notre Dame football. Just imagine you in Indiana basketball." That you, you know, you're dreaming of getting on the court and playing for 20 seconds. Maybe if you can put that mindset into uh, into this character, it'll help you out. 
well, I didn't use that, but uh, that was that was Rudy's uh, kind of solution for it. And uh, you know, that's that's the beginning of how I end up making the deal and writing that that film. Okay, but look, you are somebody who you, you talked about. You don't like the rewrite process because you need yeah. to create the characters from inside out. You you were passionate about Indiana basketball, which is what made you so perfect. And you, you grew up in that world, so you knew it. You didn't like Notre Dame football. You, if you were an Indiana basketball kid, you weren't a college football guy. Uh, and Rudy himself well, bugged the hell out of you. Yeah, but you, you, here's, one, here's one thing you have to understand. If you remember, we talked about the first episode. I grew up one block from the IU football stadium. Yeah, Two no, blocks from the IU. I, 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 w I went to IU football. I was just a big a college football fan. Okay. Not as big. I was a bigger basketball fan. But because Indiana never had the, the kind of success in football, but I did. I never missed a home game, you know. But so I, I knew I'm, college football. I'm curious, though, how you your heart was in Hoosiers. Yeah. I mean, it was it was it was as personal to you as personal could be. Right. How did you go from I'm just going into this meeting to help these guys. Now I'm writing the movie. And yet the movie does have as much heart as anything that's ever been written. How did you get over the hump of not wanting to do this, like Ward said, being annoyed by Rudy himself, to diving in to write an amazing script? Well, one of my ways in to personalize it and, and what the real, the strongest connective tissue for me uh, was my recognition uh, at a certain point that Rudy's story in a way was my own uh, in this way, which is the idea of a, of, of, of a guy from Bloomington, Indiana, who knows nobody in the film business to go out to Los Angeles and hear that 100,000 screenplays are registered with the Writers Guild every day there's only like 200 movies made out of the studios. Your chances of actually being one of those filmmakers are as great as Rudy was to get even get into Notre Dame. And, 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 and I realized that people who, and I thought about this, the people who are successful in, in the business were those people who didn't, weren't discouraged about the word no. They, they, they didn't personalize rejection. And that's what Rudy was. So Rudy was my metaphor for uh, uh, my own success, was, was, was finding that way of moving forward despite all the obstacles and all the odds and all the people telling you, you're out of your mind to, mm -hmm. to try to chase this dream and this notion. And I think that part of it is what resonates and what is effective to, uh, to, to most people. I mean, I... I I had this, um, this idea, and, and I, I didn't really articulate it so much with uh, Hoosiers. I did have a sign over my desk saying, this is not a sports movie. But uh, <laughs> one, of, one of the things that, that I thought about in Rudy, which was really critical, is that I had two distinct kind of constituencies or audiences that I had to serve. One was the Notre Dame football fanatic, the college football fanatic, the football fanatic. Um, and, and I had to serve their needs and get that right. But I also had to serve the needs of people who could care less about sports or football or, or, or Notre Dame or any of those things, because if it didn't work for them, 
um, the movie doesn't work. And, right. and that was my, my target. It was my goal. It was uh, my intention that I was going to make it for them and not for the Notre Dame people, but I was going to serve the Notre Dame people and get it right. So, and, and this is, and I, and I mentioned this earlier that I was going to talk about this, that in the premiere, we had many premieres of Rudy. We had one in South Bend and one in um, Chicago and one in, in, in Los Angeles. And, and I really never forget the only comment I remember from, you know, everybody's always so nice at premieres. Oh, great job. You know, you don't know whether they're, you know, we're, you know they're full of shit or not, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> they always have to, you know, put on the right show and say, <laughs> we always had jokes about, you know, if you really hated something, you're really, you're, you know, somebody you're close to, you have all these kind of ways in which to say, wow, that was really something, or you've done it again, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't get too many of those uh, yeah. for, for Rudy, but um, uh, the one, the one reaction was from a woman that I did not know who was, who told me she was middle-aged. She said, my husband dragged me to this movie. I didn't want to see it. I don't like sports. I don't like um, college football. I don't like football and on and on. I don't, I don't have any connection to the Midwest or Notre Dame or anything. He said, I don't think I've cried as hard as the end of a movie uh, that, uh, that I've seen in the last two years. Mm. He said, it, it got me deep and I, I, it makes me feel like this idea I have that I haven't pursued that I want to pursue now. Well, that was the most beautiful response that I've ever gotten. That was the dream response that, uh, that it really did inspire. It moved and inspired her in spite of the fact she could care less about football or sports. Wow. So I have to imagine working with Sean Astin was very similar to Gene Hackman, right? He really brought the same kind of baggage to the table. After all the Goonies success, he was just throwing his weight around the set. He was such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the, the, the chemistry, the atmosphere, the camaraderie or, or lack thereof on, on Rudy? Well, the, the thing that happened uh, what, what, uh, is that when, I mean, TriStar ended up making the movie, it was put into turnaround because Frank Price was fired and we couldn't find a home for the movie for another year. Hmm. And, <clears throat> and, and we finally got a chance to make it with the same uh, executives that were at uh, Orion when, when Hoosiers made, Mike Metavoy and uh, Mark Platt, and, and I had to do multiple rewrites to finally get the green light. And they really wanted, the, you know, it was like, sometimes you wonder, do these people even read the script? They wanted a handsome movie star. They wanted Chris O'Donnell or Brendan Fraser. I remember those are the two names they had at the top of the list. And we had to meet with them. Uh, both are great guys, wonderful. And I ran into Chris not too long ago, uh, you know, on the golf course. and. He wanted that part so bad. He went to Boston College and he was a, he was a good Catholic boy. And, and uh, but well, the guy and, was and, six feet tall. He was six feet tall and handsome. This is <laughs> not who Rudy was at all. I mean, it was like, come on. And uh, well, and, and Brendan Frazier's an Indianapolis guy, right? Uh, no. Yeah, no, isn't isn't Brendan from Indianapolis? He may be, but I don't I don't, I don't think so. 
I don't okay. think so. Uh, you, you keep going. I'll look that up. I've, that I've told up. a lot of people that over the years. Oh, maybe maybe he is, but I, I, I was not aware of it. Anyway, so uh, David saw, uh, I can't remember what the movie was that he saw. Was it, uh, it was something that Sean was in. And he said, oh my gosh, he's the right size and shape and he has the right energy. Well, we put in the call uh, to his agent to meet with him. He read the script and the minute it went, it didn't take 10 or 15 minutes this lunch before we realized this is Rudy. You know, he's got the same can do high energy, yeah. positive, you know, he, he's the energizer bunny that just wouldn't, would keep going at the same time. He had a real sweetness to him mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, it, it, just a big heart. Uh, and, and, uh, we loved it, it immediately. And we, we fought for him passionately and we finally won that battle. Uh, Brendan, Brendan is from Indianapolis, uh-huh. but apparently his family moved around a lot. So he might, okay. might not feel like a true Hoosier. This right. is a personal detour, but do you remember the, the, he was such a small part in the movie. Do you remember a gentleman by the name of Robert or Bob Moeller? Yes. Yeah. He was a brother. He was a brother. Yes. He was Rudy's brother. Yeah. Bob Moeller worked for Warner Brothers at a division of Warner Brothers. My first job in uh, the creative side of the business, my office was directly next to Bob Moeller's. Wow. And I met Bob. And he found out that I was a Hoosier. And he's like, oh, so you must love the movie Hoosiers. This was like the first day we met. Yeah. I said, well, of course, yes. And Bob goes, well, you know who made Hoosiers? And I'm like, well, you mean Angelo Pizzo, the writer, and David Anspaugh, the director? Yeah, I know. I know, of course. They're legends. He goes, I was in Rudy. I'm <laughs> like, no, you weren't. No, yeah. you weren't. Because Bob at this time had no hair. He was bald. I'm like, yeah. you weren't in Rudy. He's like, go back and watch the movie. I'm one of the brothers. Right. And uh, it was hilarious. And, and, and he just talked so lovingly about that movie and that experience of, of being. So, so here's a quick antidote. Talk okay. to, you, said, you mentioned small part. Okay. Um, so the, there was a part of, of Mary, who was the pep girl, you know, mm-hmm. painted the helmets and found mm-hmm. out Rudy was, Rudy tried to get into Notre Dame or be part of Notre Dame by joining the pep squad. And she found out he wasn't, said, you go home. Anyway, the, the, the TriStar was desperate to get recognizable actors in the movie. So when they did the trailer, somebody said, oh, there's, there's so-and-so. Sure. And, uh, so um, it, there was a young actress named Kim Williams at the time. You know, she's still around, obviously. And she was fa- in Father of the Bride. And sure. she, she was shooting a movie in, in Canada and said, we're going to offer a lot of money. And, uh, and, and we, we want to... Uh, we want her to be in this, to take the role of Mary. Well, David and I had been reading different actors locally in Chicago, and we came across this, uh, this actress uh, who David was completely head over heels for and thought she'd be great. And she was very good, but she was raw. She really had only done one year of, of uh, uh, she did one year of, of uh, soap operas, but she was doing local theater and quit that. And um, she felt very much Midwest, but I was along. I was along the line of uh, of, of, <clears throat> of of Kim Williams, so I could help the studio. I was the voice of reason. Mm-hmm. In that so they decided to, you know, they were going to convince David they're going to fly Kim down to South South Bend for a meeting. Well, David 
made up the fact that he, he called in sick. So, <laughs> uh, and, and because he wanted this actress so badly, he was, he tanked it. Okay. So I spent the day with her and I just developed this intense crush. Okay. Yeah, sure. I fought hard. I fought so hard. Dave and I went toe to toe on this back and forth. And I finally, you know, I, I, I it was a losing proposition because he wanted this other local Chicago actress. Well, he won and I ended up marrying her. Oh, <laughs> amazing. Having two kids with her. <laughs> <laughs> I you didn't see that coming, did you? No, I did not. Good twist. Good yeah. twist. Wow, well, that is. Wait, I have one, one other, uh, let's say, cameo in that movie that obviously nobody knew it at the time, but after I watched a little movie called Swingers, yeah. and then I went back and watched Rudy, I was like, no, yeah, Viz Vaughn is the quarterback and Rudy. Um, yeah. what, did, did you have any inkling that, that there was a star amongst you um, and playing that role, or was he just a guy from Chicago who fit the part? Well, he was from Chicago, but he was actually in L.A. trying to break in. He really hadn't done much. And uh, it was my responsibility of casting that role because we were actually shooting at the time and David didn't want to deal with any any more casting. So I had to go through a lot of different tapes. And Dean Kane was one of the, the people they sent to us. You know, remember Dean? He was all Superman. American. Superman. Yeah, he was all American at Buffalo. And uh, we really wanted the quarterback. We cast the, we cast that character was the quarterback. And uh and Vince, um, uh, you know, I, I saw a, a, some footage of him, uh, at, you know, acting, and I thought I thought he was very good. And um, we asked him uh, what kind of sports background. Well, he said he was uh, honorable mention Allstate uh, in football in Illinois. So he shows up on the set, <clears throat> and we go out to uh, you know work work him out as the quarterback. I hate this expression. People hate me for saying this, but I I'm know gonna, what you're going to say. He threw it like a girl. <laughs> <laughs> now I've seen girls throw a football. That is great. Yeah. I, I mean, he did not know how to throw. A football. <laughs> and it was a complete lie that he was on. I mention. He, he admitted it later. And he's actually gone on the talk show circuit when he's asked about this story. And he says, when they found out that I just wasn't a, an athlete or a quarterback or player, he said, those two guys, they basically wouldn't speak to me the entire movie. And they <laughs> reduced his part. We reduced his part down to practically nothing. Phenomenal. <laughs> Bruno, but I, will, I will say this. You didn't ask me about Favreau because John Favreau had never really done anything. He was like working at Second City at, right. as a stand-up. And, you know, he, he just gave great audition, great improv. He's just mm -hmm. a such a smart talented guy well they room next to each other and it, that's where they developed the friendship wow. that ultimately became swingers so we are responsible for swingers and their careers no I'm, I'm i <laughs> i didn't know they met on that movie i guess i yeah. had assumed they they met before and, no, and it went from there honestly, what has john favreau gone on to do <laughs> yeah. I know, really. <laughs> by the way for our audience who may not know John Favreau is now one of the most prolific directors in the history of movies because of the Marvel movies and Jungle Book, I think was his. He's become like Disney's go-to. Mandalorian now, Mandalorian. Like, yeah, Mandalorian. I mean, the, his, his big uh, Iron Man. Uh, Iron Man, yeah. And, and, uh, and Lion King. 
Yes. And I mean, he just an incredible career. I will tell you though, but what, let me go quick detour. Bruno Kirby, the great old actor who's, who's no longer with us, who's one of my favorite actors, told a great story. You know, he played, as you know, uh, Angelo, young Clemenza in Godfather 2. Right. And he, te- he used to tell the great story about how he got that role. He said that his mom or, or his dad took him to uh, the audition because they were just auditioning Italian kids. They just wanted people. And his dad told him, you're from the Yes School of Acting. Can you ride a horse? Yes. Can you speak fluent Italian? Yes. And then yes. if you get the part, you go figure something out in a couple of weeks that you have, yeah. you know, yeah. but you say yes till you get the part. But yeah. back to Rudy, I will tell you for me, and Sean Astin is amazing, obviously, and, and everybody did amazing. But for me, the movie is Charles Dutton's character. Mm-hmm. I yeah. love that character and his performance as that character. Yeah. When he claps, at the end, I mean, it's everything. It, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it. What He seems like an intense dude. Is he? Very. I mean, you know, uh, his nickname was Rock. And, <laughs> and uh, I can't remember what the derivation of that, but he was- They made a sitcom called Great, Rock. Great show. Love that show. He was in prison for a couple of years. And, and uh, you know, he, he, uh, he knew a hard life, you know, and- uh, uh, he was uh, he was a wonderful person, and, and uh, just uh, he was willing to do whatever we wanted to, and and uh, and he was our he was our workhorse, and uh, he was our go to guy, and uh, and I have nothing but most positive memories of, of Rock Dutton. So let's bring it back to Indiana basketball for a second, because in our last uh, in our first part with you, you talked about how. You know, Knight obviously was aware of Hoosiers. You got welcomed in. You were riding the team plane. That all stopped when the Minnesota game happened. And we know it was Chernobyl on the plane. But you're now, you know, all over the place. You're successful. You're making movies. You're living in L.A. What is your fandom for Indiana basketball? How, how much are you following the program? What's going on? Rudy's 1993. It's the Cheney years, the end of the Cheney years. What is your relationship to Indiana basketball and to Coach Knight throughout the, the rest of the 90s? Well, it, I would always make sure to come back for at least four or five games every year. Uh, wow. That's number one. And number two, I followed them as passionately as I ever did. Uh, and the only way I could do that, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last uh, podcast, but the only way I could there before the internet, of course, um, there was only the local paper and Bob Hamill, the great Bob Hamill, who would write, you know, an article about Indiana basketball every day and, you know, game day uh, after the game, three articles. Right. Uh, and so I took a subscription to the Herald Times and it would be dumped on my my doorstep like seven papers all at once and uh, i'd go through and i read everything religiously so i there wasn't anything i didn't know about basketball because you know no there was not a better sports writer in the country in fact bob won sports writer of the year uh, national sports writer of the year i think multiple times so uh that's how I, I followed up. And then, of course, more and more games were televised. Sure. And, and all the local games were televised. And, and, and my dad would videotape them and send them to me. So wow. I actually did watch every game that was televised locally. And that, that's how I, I kept up. Did how you, much did you love 
those Cheney teams because those were as we remember the 87 team, but Eric and I have talked about it many times that like that was those were our guys that that was the group that ensured we would be obsessed with Indiana basketball for life. Absolutely. And Brian Evans, you know, another another guy that I, I just loved everything about his game. He just felt like such a Hoosier. And he had a unique kind of style with that lefty thing that he did. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it was, uh, I never, it never let up. I mean, I have to be honest with you. We moved back from, uh, we moved from LA after being there for 30 years to Bloomington. It was for three reasons. Uh, One was to raise my boys in a good college town. They were seven and 10 at the time. And number two, was Indiana basketball. I wanted season tickets. I wanted to see every game and I wanted to watch every game that was an away game. So it was, and I, I would say, you know, to my wife at the time, I said, look, um, and, and my present girlfriend knows this too. I said to her, I'm, you know, I'm open for negotiation on w- whatever we need to do, you know, whatever social engagement or this trip or that trip, whatever except if Indiana's playing at home. That's where uh, <laughs> it's non-negotiable. There is nothing that takes precedence over that. And, um, and I remember, uh, you know, it was like, even if, you know, nobody was pregnant when I was here, but even if so, <laughs> that would even, that would have been tough, you know, yeah, somebody, I get that it. Been the only, that would be the only other situation. Did you, um, did you maintain a relationship with coach Knight? Uh, through I the did, I did, but we, we, we you know, it, it, um, uh, it, it, whenever I came back, I would always go to practice. Okay. And when I would go to practice, I would, uh, uh, he was very nice. Uh, and, but we never, I, it, the invitation never went out to do another road trip with me. I think that he knew at some level he knew, but I had dinner with him a couple of times or, or lunch with him, uh, but it wasn't a close relationship. And he would call me because he had a friend who had an idea for a movie, those kind of things. You know, everybody always has ideas for movies, as of you course. all know. Yeah. And um, but you know, it was then when he was fired here and he went to Texas Tech, I got an invitation to go down there. And, and to be part of that first game. And what he was doing, he was running people through a loyalty check and to see whether they would show up to basically say F you to, you know, Indiana basketball. And um, I, I said, you know, I, 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 through Dr. Rink, who was the, the invitation was through, I, I, I said, I, I'm uh, my first loyalty is to Indiana basketball. I can't go down there. Wow. And, I, and I'm not going to support him in that kind of way because mm. he did list all the people who went, you know, and made sure it was in the paper that Bob Hamill put it in the paper. And, and uh, <clears throat> I didn't want to be on that list. I just didn't want to be on that list. So did you ever talk to him again? I did. Okay. And he, you know, and, and he was, he was, uh, Again, he had a friend who lived in Dallas, who was a multimillionaire, who um, he, he, he called me at, uh, and when I, in 2006, when I was here in Bloomington about this guy who had, you know, wanted to set up a film company and, and, and wanted me to give him advice. So we, we kind of grew apart, 
Um, but uh, he was always very nice to me whenever we were, you know, he was in town. Well, he didn't, he didn't show up in Bloomington, but whenever we, we, we talked on the phone a couple of times, but that was about it. Take out the 1987 championship. What is your single favorite Indiana University Hoosiers basketball moment? I can tell you without a hesitation. And, and, and there's actually no, not a close second. It was the watch shot. You tell mm -hmm. us your story, please give us well, your no, I mean, I, my seats are five feet off the floor. I was with my son who was like 14 at the time. And I was sure that we had lost another game to the team that I hated with a passion. Yes. I just, I, I, I don't mind. I, I'm a little careful about saying that about Notre Dame because that's not really accurate, but it is accurate when it comes to Kentucky basketball. <laughs> I truly hate these people and that team. And please their tell me, please tell me, there is not a paycheck out there that you would write the Kentucky basketball movie. There, no, that doesn't, you know, it's like you say, everybody has their price. I don't have that price. All right, good, good, <laughs> good man. It, good. Doesn't, it doesn't exist, all right? <laughs> so, uh, uh, the, the reason, one of the reasons I remember that so clearly was the sound of being in that arena, in that place, five feet off the floor. I felt like I, the energy and the decibel level, I felt like I was almost being picked up <laughs> off the floor. And, um, I, and, and I just remember saying, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I kept repeating this. And my son, who's now 23, uh, uh, remembers me saying that over and over again. <laughs> I was so stunned. I was so prepared for another loss that uh, this miracle ending just didn't, I didn't see it coming. And, uh, and uh, I, I just, I think I started crying. I actually mm. started weeping. And I don't remember ever having that same feeling. I mean, we, of course, we were thrilled by Key Smart shot at the end, uh, and you know, they're uh, Kirk Hayson saw they're like they're great endings, but there was nothing like the watch shot. I mean, <laughs> that was that was on a that's on a level. And to this day, I will go back and I'll watch that. You know, the various different clips. I'll watch it from they had videos from Knicks and Knicks. from bars in New York and uh, and and the various angles within the you know assembly hall and and I'll just watch it and smile yeah well and that you had moved back to Bloomington yeah. right as the Mike Davis era was starting he'd had the magical run to the championship game and we all thought hey maybe Maybe we're just going to keep chugging along and you show up in Bloomington to then just see the, 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 the de-evolution of Mike Davis and the program there. And then the hope and then the immediate explosion around Kelvin Sampson, the terrible early years of Tom Crean. So like to experience all that. And that's, that's kind of what your son at that point knew of Indiana basketball was this, I mean, really abysmal seasons and struggle and loss it, it, like never before uh, in at least in our lifetimes had we experienced more than a couple rough seasons under coach Knight, really maybe like one bad season. So to go through all that, I think we all just wondered if, if we were ever going to have a moment like that again. 
Well, that you put a, you put that in context really well, and 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 I haven't quite thought about it in that way, but yes, it, it was like coming out of the wilderness, mm. uh, especially after those first two years of of Crean's uh, time, uh, that where you thought, are we ever going to win again? I mean, right. the, are we ever going to be able to compete with the best teams? Are we now cursed? This post night uh, era will be. It'll be like. Uh, I mean. UCLA, we're just—it's ne we're never going to get back uh, on the top, and uh, we'll never we'll never be with the blue bloods anymore. So, mm -hmm. for it was so unexpected because there'd been so much loss and disappointment and pain to be an Indiana fan for all those years. It was like a release. It kind of let everything go and made everything seem possible. So, yeah, nothing like that. Watch. <laughs> we we've talked to I think virtually every player that was on that team and got their perspective uh, about it. And for each of them, there was a moment that it went from pure bliss to pure terror because <laughs> they all thought they were going to die because at the, the bottom of a pile. The crowd rushing on the floor. Yes. And, and, on the, and they're on the ground and, yes. and they're having to be ripped up, you know, people they are suffocating. Right. I imagine your seat. So you're looking across the floor at the Indiana bench, correct? That's right. So you're looking directly at Watford shooting that shot. That's right. Yeah. Is the sea of humanity rushing by you from the, the, the you're on the bleachers, right? Yeah. On the, yeah. Right off the floor. Yeah. So yeah. Are, are people rushing by you to get on the, was it scary for you at any moment? Well, not really because I was surrounded by uh, uh, older donors who were not going <laughs> to rush the court. <laughs> Right. So the students were the majority and they came from a different area. Got it. So I didn't really feel that sense of being buried or being crushed or any of those things. It was, uh, but you just got to watch this. I, I could jump up and down and slap everybody's hands and cry and hug. And it was like, uh, it was a, a beautiful, you talk about a unifying moment. Uh, oh. you know, it, it was like, it was like 18,000 people and everybody else watching it. There were, there was, I mean, how do you align this pure joy with that many people at the same time that you never saw coming? It, it was, uh, I, I, I can't, it's hard for me to even describe this to people who don't know what I'm talking about, who weren't there. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I have, my girlfriend uh, is from Los Angeles. She doesn't care about sports, but you know, when we started dating, she just had to accept. And I had to tell her, like, like you've had the conversation about, I'll do whatever social engagement you want, but just understand yeah. that if Indiana's playing. And that's how it is in our house. Like, if Indiana's playing, like, nothing's going on, just so you know. Like, I don't really care what else is happening in your life. And I've had to show her, I haven't showed her that whole game, but moments in that game. And I've tried to give her the full context of what everything Ward was talking about. And then I, the thing that resonated for her was the Knicks video. When I showed her the video from Knicks, those couple videos from Knicks and the various bars, yeah. that's when she fully, not fully, but that's when she kind of crossed the Rubicon, if you will. <laughs> you know, that's how she really started understanding what this meant to people. Yeah, right. You know, and now she's come back to some games with us and she was there when Knight returned and oh, came back yeah. to Assembly Hall. So I did want to go there with you. Uh, obviously, I would assume you were there. Yeah, I will, I'm going to parenthetically throw, throw this in, that my girlfriend of now 10 years, um, uh, 
she hates sports and has <laughs> no interest. And I, I, I've had these. She won't go to me with IU games. Oh, it's too loud for her, you know. <laughs> um, and, and she ends up texting during the whole game, you know. And and uh, so, uh, you know, you can't have it all in relationships. No, you can't have it all. <laughs> but you she, can't have it all. she, she gets me, gives me my IU space, and is, there you, you go. Know, and she's a local girl too. So that's what yeah, she, nuts. she knows. It's not just you. No. Yes. No. She <laughs> knows the true fanaticism that exists in this town. So were, you were at the game where coach Knight did return. Very, very moving, very moving. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I cried during that entire experience because again, I knew him when he was at the top of his game and, and I spent a lot of time with him uh, in, in conversation that was some of the most intellectually uh, stimulating conversation I've ever had with anybody. And, and, uh, and I knew that he was in steep decline mentally. And yet, uh, you know, the, there was something almost mythic about, uh, you know, the, 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 the warrior that came home again, you know, it was like coming home to Ithaca uh, and, mm -hmm. uh, and I, uh, and, and I saw all the players that were there. Woody was there, of course, and, and Quinn Buckner, who's a good friend of mine, and, and Steve Green and uh, Randy Whitman. And, and uh, I knew that, you know, his brethren, his sons, his, his, his team was carrying him, supporting him, and how moved they were. It was, it was as powerful emotional experience that I've ever had in a basketball arena. It had nothing to do with basketball. Mm. So, couldn't agree more. Couldn't well, agree more. and when you cite your experience, I don't think it's fair because you still, you 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 look so young. Oh, Yet, I, I it's still hard for me to look at you and realize that you were you were rebounding for Archie D's and Walt Bellamy like that. Yeah. That seems like uh, not possible to me. But but you do have that long lens of history from McCracken through this moment of coach Knight coming back, which yeah. leads to the question, who is your favorite IU basketball player of all time? Oh, wow. That is such a, that's a, that's a really, really tough question. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why, because there were certain players that meant uh, a lot to me at certain points in my life, sure. but mm -hmm. you know, compare and contrast it, it. It's just really, really not fair. I, I have to tell you that, um, that uh, uh, Quinn Buckner is someone that I've become really good friends with. And I loved him as a player. I loved everything about his leadership abilities yeah. and the way he made that, ran that team and how amazing athlete he was. He could have been a pro football player, actually played at IU uh, for a year or two. And, um, and, and I just loved everything about um, uh, what he stood for and what he represented in, in bringing kind of the best team that we've ever seen, maybe in the college game, and that's 75 and 76 years. So that, and, and I named my son after him. My, my son's name's wow. Quinn. Wow. And, and I, I, still, I still see Quinn and, uh, and, uh, on a regular basis. And, uh, and so if you separate, if, if you combine kind of personal connection and basketball player it would have to be Quinn but in terms of like um like the the the, the basketball player that I remember you know uh that I, I have such 
fond memories of people like Jimmy Rail. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was a kid and I was looking up to these heroes, they had a mythic kind of place in my my life and 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 the way in which I perceived the world. So Walt Bellamy, George McGinnis, Jimmy Rail were those gods to me, and I didn't know them other than rebounding for them. And uh, but I I was too old to rebound, and I didn't do that in the once we got into the '60s and I went into junior high school and high school. But uh, yeah, I would uh, I would say also it, another player, the nicest player to me when I was kind of the team mascot when I was eight, nine, ten years old was Gary Long. And Gary Long was Big Ten Player of the Year. And by sheer coincidence, we cast his son, Buddy. Uh, I mean, it cast his his son as the character of Buddy. Buddy. Right. So Brad, Brad Long is, uh, is is Gary's son. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to really kind of pinpoint. All right, well. You, you love the aesthetic of Calvert and Brian Evans. And I mentioned, you know, the, the various players uh, that- Host we night. We, we had this debate a few weeks back um, on our reasonable rabbi, who do you think is the the best player in the post Coach Knight era? Oh wow, that's a that's a really good question. The best post Knight uh, player, um, um, it would probably have to be Victor, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we went with Eric Gordon. Yeah, you know what? I didn't. I, I didn't. I just Eric was. Eric was, Eric wasn't, I, I never completely loved Eric Gordon. I knew mm. his, his talent was prodigious. Yeah. Um, but he committed to Illinois and it was, it was the Kelvin Sampson time where I just don't have good memories of, of that I get time that. at all. A lot of baggage. And, and, I, and I actually have memories of, of, of games where Eric should have taken over and he couldn't and he didn't. Yeah, I, it's fair. I, I never honestly, I, 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 I admired his his amazing abilities as a player, but I never loved him. Mm. Yeah, it was tough because he also he was only there for a year, and exactly. it was a year yeah. of tumult. And and, uh, and Victor, along with being there three years, and you see this uh, ascension, this development before right. your very eyes. That's right. And yeah. he does end up being drafted second in the yeah. NBA draft, which is yeah. incredible. But right. then he also has a great charisma about him. Absolutely. Yes. And I got to know Victor a little bit. And, uh, you know, that's when I was uh, got and spent time with with Coach Green. And uh, he invited me to practice. And, you know, and Victor was such a character. And, you know, he talked about movies and he wanted to be a movie star and be he oh, wanted yeah. me to cast him in movies, all these kind of things. So. Now, that's not why I think you were asking me about the best player. I, I mean, mm -hmm. to me, um, I, I, he was, he, to me, he was the best post, uh, post night player. That's best a good player. choice. Great All choice. Right. What are you doing now? Oh, what am I doing now? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> well, you skipped over like three movies that I made. Well, but that's I know, but we're, I mean, Angelo, no, it's no, already no. almost midnight your time. I do, well, I just want to make sure that I have the total cumulative time longer than Dane Five. That's There's going to be a part about. three with you. There's going to be a part three. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, I am curious. Since you, also, my dog's going to take a dump in my in my house before <laughs> long, so we, no, I get to I'm the kidding. end. I'm kidding. <laughs> so yeah, I do want to know what you're up to now. I mean, I, I think, look, 
most of the people listening to this uh, are not in the entertainment industry. Most right. people, in fact, all that live in Bloomington, Indiana are not in the entertainment industry. Ward and I are, uh, we've both been in it for about 20 years and longevity in our business is uh, rare, let's say. And especially in the world of what you've done, which is writing movies and getting people to pay you to write movies, is it's just one of the rarest forms of, uh, of, a, of a successful career that you can have out here. And you've done it. And it is remarkable. And you're still doing it. So I, 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 am, I am just totally fascinated by your career and am totally fascinated by what you're doing right now. Because I know you got multiple I irons in the fire. I do, and I'll just I'll just talk about four things because two of them are scripts I've already written <clears throat> that are being financed, or the, the financing is is being put together now. Great. And when I say that, doesn't mean that movies will necessarily get made because one budget six million, the other seventy million, and um, I'm attached to direct both, and, and both of them are not sports movies, uh, and and that's really the only thing that I respond to now. I don't take uh, I don't take on sports films at all. I've written way too many locker room speeches. I've run out of them. And uh, so uh, the, the, these were scripts I wrote during the pandemic year. Uh, one is called Horses of Fire, but relationship between a boy and a fire horse in New York City in the, at the turn of the century. Wow. It's a great, great story. It's not my story. It was, it was pitched to me. And, um, and, and I, the, the interesting things were these are four guys from Long Island, one well-known director, uh, and one fireman, one one policeman, and one big time financier, and um, they, the I just tell you this is a little. This is what you're talking about. Uh, I've been very very lucky because two of the films that I've made have sustained their popularity over the years, and that's rare, you know. And, yeah. and I think Rudy has grown. Rudy wasn't a success out of the box, and and, mm. and uh, in 2000 and. and 2002, I think it was USA did uh, today did a top 20 uh, football movies, uh, and uh, and Rudy was like 16th or 17th. Well, they did it last fall, and Rudy was number one. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean talk that, about rare. Talk yeah, about I mean, rare. That, that, that usually doesn't happen. So I get hired because of people's connection to those films, and 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 I was hired by these Long Island guys to do this fire horse movie. Um, uh, because they all, when they were talking about getting a writer, they knew that one of the things that was important about this movie is it had to make you cry at the end. It was that, that mm. emotional. So everybody had to list the movies that made them cry. And the, <laughs> and, 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 and of all, uh, in all of the, all four of them, there was only one common film. And that was Rudy. And that's why I got a call out of nowhere from this guy with a Long Island accent. Hey, wow. we're hiring you to do this movie. Anyway, so um, that's a very exciting movie. And I, and I have another, the smaller $6 million movie is a coming of age film set against the Civil War. The twist is it's a female uh, and not a male. And I've never written a female lead character before. And I think it's one of the best scripts I've ever written. Wow. I'll send it to you. Please do. I would love to read it. You will really like this script. Would love to and, read it. Uh, and, and I think we have a really good shot with that. So um, I knew we weren't because of the pandemic. We were not going to be able to get up and rolling uh, in, in 2022. And these are weather dependent. 
So we want to shoot them in the real place. We want to shoot them in New York and Illinois where they took place. So these are 2022 projects uh, if they do happen and get financed. So the two scripts I've agreed to do, uh, one is um, about a professional wrestler named Diamond Dallas Page, who you know, Eric, <laughs> yeah. who's a fascinating character, a fascinating person. By the he, way, Angelo, a lot of Rudy in him. A lot of Rudy? Oh my gosh, he puts Rudy to shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he'll knock on you know, your door. He, you know, he pitched me to do this story and I turned him down again about as many times I turned... Uh, well, you know, he flew up to Bloomington and, you know, he's a very charismatic, powerful, convincing person with a huge heart and a big soul and a giving and loving person. And, and my story is the arc of, of it's, I called it, I told him it's going from the selfish to the selflessness, mm. you know, uh, arc. And, and that, that's who he was. He was all about himself and his fame and, you know, doing what he wanted and so on and so forth. And then he reached the top and it was all empty. And he, he, he was almost suicidal until he discovered that helping other people was, gave him life and meaning. And, and he has saved many persons' lives since then because of his- And that's not hyperbole. I mean, he not, has actually not at all saved, hyperbole. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and by the way, he has saved the six foot six, 280 pound wrestler and the 59 year old woman yeah. and the right. veteran. And I mean, yeah. it is all walks of life. Yeah. He it's, is- It's an amazing story. I, yeah. So. Uh, it's not been easy, right? You know, I, I didn't know anything about professional wrestling. So, and, and there's not really a lot of professional wrestling in here because um, we're, again, we're not serving the, the we're going to serve the needs. We'll get it right, but it's not, that's not what this is about. And the other film is a sports film. And, and the, the reason I said yes to this was because this was a script that was pitched to me. The idea was pitched to me after Rudy and I didn't it was not it was not after it was like in in night around 2000 it was like six, six years after rudy and i always i fell in love with the jim thorpe story mm. you know and the carlisle indian school football team and how they had to overcome all the uh, adversity and um and obstacles in order to become the best football team in the country beating these great ivy league schools that had everything and they and these this this team had nothing and um, and so I agreed to do it. And uh, they said, what's your take? And I gave my take uh, about it. And uh, and they never hired me. I, I didn't realize they they offered it to a number of people and, and got a number of people's takes. And they like somebody else to take better. But that movie never got made. So I get a call from um, somebody I knew a lot about. And I have such tremendous respect for is a name named Hal, Ray Halbrighter. Ray is the principal reason that the Washington Redskins is now called the Washington football team. Wow. He is the principal reason and the voice and the support to change the Cleveland Indians, getting rid of the Indians and wow. Chief Wahoo. He is the most influential Native American voice in our country today. And he's, uh, he grew up very poor in the Oneida tribe in, in New York and, um, and went to Harvard Law School uh, and uh, took over his tribe, uh, and uh, he's the president and CEO of the Oneida Nation that's now worth about $750 million because of gambling. And uh, <laughs> put it to good use. And part of what he wants to do is to raise up awareness and, and, and create a kind of a cultural pride 
with this story. And there was a wonderful uh, book written by Sally Jenkins, a great writer, uh, about uh, um, um, the, the it, it was it's called the real All Americans. And, uh, mm. and uh, they, uh, I got a call and saying, read the book. Uh, and, uh, and, and I actually, initially, I thought this is an important book because it's about so much more than football. And it was a lot worse for these Native Americans uh, than, than I ever imagined. And it's not the Jim Thorpe story. He's a character in it, but we're going to tell it through another person's point of view. And uh, I, uh, uh, I was on the fence. I actually said no. And then I got a call from Ray because the first person to contact me was Ray Partner, who was a producer and uh, who, who, who actually was a friend of his from Harvard Law School. And then Ray got on the phone and it, this, he said something to me that I found compelling and and I and, and it wasn't this did not play to my ego. This is not about the ego. When I say yes to something, I know that I have to immerse myself in this world and this uh, for at least a year or more. So I don't take on subjects lightly. But he said something to me, you know, that we are in our culturally correct time. And for me to offer this to you, you know, I'm gonna get pushback, you know, because sure. you're not a Native, Native American. But I have to tell you. Growing up, you know, and on my reservation, you know, my home, my favorite movie was Hoosiers. So I said, oh man, how do I tell, how do I say no to this guy now? Wow. I mean, Angela, that is remarkable. And he said, I'm doing this for my people. I'm not doing this to be a movie producer and to make money. And, you know, it's like, it's, you're a real asshole if you say no to him. <laughs> I'm a real asshole if I say no. So uh, yeah, that's what I'm actually. Uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm done with Dallas's uh, uh, script. Don't tell him yet. I'm wow. doing well. <laughs> and uh, and I'm I'm just going in now to do the Carlisle Indian. Can story. I read Dallas's script? After yeah, when I'm when I'm when I when I send it to him, I'll send it to you. Okay, I would love to read when, when you're whenever you're comfortable. I mean, I just yeah. I've had such a personal relationship with him over the last fifteen years that I would love yeah. to. Uh, I'd love to see that. Well, well, listen, Angelo, you are not just a Hoosier, but a national treasure. You really oh are. The story. <laughs> I don't think of myself remotely like that. That's crazy. But you are, man. I mean, you are. You, you, the, the comments that we got from the first part of your podcast, the DMs that I got, the texts, the tweets, the message board posts. I mean, you just strike such a visceral nerve with Hoosier fans because you are one of us and you can tell the story of being one of us better than we can. No, and I don't know about that. I don't you can. know. About I mean, look, that's that's what you've done for your career. And and getting to hear you in this format where you can just kind of be you and tell your stories, they are remarkable. And it has been a, it, honestly, just an honor and a, and a pleasure and a true joy to do these two parts of the podcast. And I got to tell you, when Ward and I come to Bloomington next, we got to go out for a clear the schedule because we're going to go to a long dinner, a long there, one. There, there is no doubt at all. And I'm not saying this to you guys because you just said what you said to me, but these six hours or however long, it, 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 it's the best interview uh, I've ever had in my life because wow. you combine 
uh, knowledge and um, a, a, a passion for the two things that matter most in my life. And I really haven't come across people who love film and IU basketball and that combination like you have. So that's why we could talk forever because of how they, they inter, intersperse and how they mesh. Well, so that's been great. I really enjoyed it. And, and there are many more stories that we'll talk about at Knicks. That's right. I just broke wait, my wait, hold on, hold on. I get in the love fest. Yeah, and Angelo, I was, I was thinking about thinking about this before part two. And I was like, for people like Eric's girlfriend, um, what you did with Hoosiers was you helped define what we are. You you created a story uh, in in two hours that you know it, it's not just for IU for the Indiana Hoosiers for the state or really for anybody who feels that kind of passion about the game or really anything. It's like you don't get me. Or why don't you watch this movie and then we can have a conversation and then you can start to understand how I grew up and who I grew up with and why that's such a big part of my identity and part of this community that Eric and I, we, we got such a, uh, uh, we got four years. It was such a, a relatively small window to actually be there. And maybe we'll get real smart like you one day and move back. But then to be able to, to do this, this podcast and become a part of that community, not just you and the former players and coaches, but the fans, it's, it's, it's this touchstone of this movie you made that's so important to all of us that we can all point to that, to everybody in the rest of the world and say, this is who we are. It, it's, it's something that nobody else has ever done. And I don't think anybody else ever needs to do, even if they could, because you did it. Well, I really appreciate that. That's beautifully uh, well said. And, and one, one of the things that, uh, that uh, Steven Spielberg did say to me in our conversation, you asked me earlier about it, was you're, you got to do the dream movie for your first film, mm -hmm. which is go back to your home state and create this world that you grew up in and, and you have such uh, affection for and, 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 uh, and connection to. And he said, every filmmaker would, would, you know, aspires to do that. And you got the first chance out of the box. He said, do you realize how lucky you are? I said, oh, yes, we really do feel lucky. And I thought about that because he is now making his own personal yes. story set in, I think, Arizona, where he grew up, right? And, yes. uh, and, and he's doing his version of Hoosiers this late in his life. I know, so. and it's so funny because so many of his movies, like even ones that he didn't direct, like Super 8, which I think he was an executive producer on, yeah. there are elements of it that are his biographical story. Yeah. Like you can yeah. look at so much of his career and see, oh, he's trying to get back to what was that thing that made him. Yeah, and, I think E.T. Right. has a lot of personal yeah. stuff. And, and for, sure, for sure, for sure. Uh, well, I, I do want to just say, Ward, I can't believe you said what you said about the movie, because when I started dating Holly, when we first started dating, one of the things we did with each other was we picked movies for the other one to watch, our favorite movies. And she made me watch like fucking like Age of Innocence. And some <laughs> I mean, some shit that I did not enjoy at all. OK, I did not like it at all. First movie I made her watch was Hoosiers. First one, we picked three. First one was Hoosiers. And I'm like, that's all you need to know. That's it. 
that's it. <laughs> that's it. Like how yeah. those people in that movie care about that thing, what it means to them. That's what it means to me. That is to know a big chunk of who I am. You, I can't believe you said that because that's exactly how we tried to introduce ourselves to each other. Now, I watched Age of Innocence and thought, well, shit, I'm dating a really boring person. <laughs> <laughs> that was a guest. That was a guest. Coolest guy ever. I just love him, man. I just love the stories. I love the way he tells it. I love his humility. I love... I just love everything about him. I really do. He's so interested in these worlds that he dives into them. And, you know, three out of those four projects he mentioned all have this historical context. They're, they're period pieces in different subcultures, uh, different from his own experience. And I think that's, you know, where... Yes, you think of a writer as somebody who sits and types words and dialogue, you know, that's the first go-to, like, what do the characters say? But you can just tell, and this is a reason I believe he had such a connection with Coach Knight, and they, he talked about it in the, the previous episode of, of history, yeah. but, but for him to you know for us i guess to be able to speak to him and when we do a part three you know it we could uh, just to get his his historical perspective on these different parts of iu basketball like even him talking speaking to quinn buckner and why he admired him so much that was like a point of view that you know maybe other people had kind of hit on parts of it or danced around it but then Angelo Pizzo says it with all the thinking and all the witnessing and all the talent and all the craft he has. And I understand Quinn Buckner now better than before he started talking about him for a couple minutes. Yeah, man. I mean, I named my dog Cheney. He named his kid Quinn. Yeah. Again, you know? this is where he went to, to watch IU play instead of going to the Oscars. Like, we're never going to top this guy's no fan. All right, I got to take my dog out because he's going to take a dump right here in the kitchen. So great, great. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Hoosier Hysterics for the hysterics. No E, no I. But, but the, the sometimes why. Who's your man to lead us? Who's not a total dud? Who's your brother bleeding? Crimson blue blood. Who's your man demanding what you want and more? You gotta get us back to the final four We got to vote for Eric Man for you and me We all trust in Eric Future trustee If you wanna see the candy stripe Back in the promised land You best just vote for Eric Cause I know who As who's your man Some people just know bundling with Allstate means big savings. Just like they know the right ingredient means big flavor. They know honey on pizza is where it's at. And olive oil on ice cream is the cherry on top. And they know when you bundle home and auto with Allstate, you can save up to 25%. Mm -mm. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.